welcome to episode eight of After the Ninth, our first episode 100% done on Zoom. We came into the 21st century, Dayton. Yeah, uh, definitely uh, things have uh, been evolving here the last little bit uh, just because of, you know, joining forces with the WPCA. Uh, we're we're uh, getting, well, maybe I'm getting a little bit more of that high-tech redneck blood like my dad. I, I don't know. Maybe it's because I got uh, you helped me out and Brian helped me out uh, doing all this stuff. I don't know. But yeah, we're a 100% Zoom. And we're actually going to be bringing some pretty cool stuff too uh, later on down the line. We're going to be doing some uh, um, race reviews, race annotations, I guess. So uh, the idea will be kind of, um, you know, we'll, we'll put up some some old race footage. Uh, you know, I got I know a guy that knows a guy that knows a guy that's got access to the WPCA footage. Uh, from uh, last couple years so uh, we're gonna start moving to do some of that uh, stuff just because it's easier for me to do uh, and I can I can get some more uh, uh, content out the C word uh, uh, for everybody so um, hopefully everybody likes that and hopefully it's going to fill that void for those of you who are wanting to see the races but unfortunately right now we can't with COVID-19 um, that has caused a bit of a wrench in everybody's plans right now. Yeah, certainly. Uh, um, you know, it, it, it's no surprise, this whole Corona thing. I mean, uh, we're the same as anybody. It's a small business, um, you know, as far as the chuck wagon. The nice thing about it is everybody's in the same boat. So uh, we're all kind of in it together, you know, if you will. So uh, it, it's tough right now, but we just kind of got to roll with the punches and uh, play the cards we're dealt. Yeah, well, we'll all figure it out together. It's a, it's a slow process, but we're going to get there. Um, unfortunately, that means spring training has been pushed back, Dayton. What does that mean for the horses? Well, um, usually they're getting hot kind of or ready at this time of the year. You know, they, they can feel the weather changing. Uh, they can, they, it's, uh, it's, it's built right into their instincts and, and their uh, um, natural uh, formations as a horse and what I mean by that is I mean like quite literally um, at this time of the year uh, they, they start to um, you know sensing that, that the weather's changing same as a bear does out of hibernation or whatever um, you know even for example uh, their coats obviously they start shedding out their winter coats and it's got nothing to do with the heat but it's actually the sunlight so uh, you know it's the it's the days um, are obviously longer at this time of the year so you're as far north as I am, uh, they, they've been shedding out their winter coats now, uh, uh, or, or they'll, it'll really, really um, uh, exponentially increase as far as the, the duration of time that it takes to shed out the coat, uh, just because it's so bright for so long uh, of the day right now. And that's what actually causes them to, to, to shed that excess coat. So it's, so it's literally built right into them this time of the year. They start to feel real, real hot, real warm. They feel real good, had a good winter, uh, lots of oats. Uh, so it's going to be kind of, it's kind of disappointing uh, for me and obviously for them, you know, they're, uh, they're not stupid. They, they know they should be training or this is the time that it's, uh, uh, that we should be training or, or, or going or racing or whatever. They should be exercised right now. So, um, everybody's at a little bit of a limbo, but, um, we're just playing it by ear. Uh, there's nothing we can do, uh, other than, uh, uh keep everybody, uh, healthy and safe. Right. Uh, to me, where I stand right now, there's, there's bigger things in the world than, than chuck wagon racing i mean uh it's it's no secret the economy's in 
in a pretty poor position right now. So uh, uh, I think everybody's just kind of at the same, uh, in the same boat and we're all just uh, trying to get uh, everything straight. So um, that's, that's pretty much that. I mean, no secret guys, we're going to see shows cancel. I mean, the Alberta government, uh, uh, you know, said uh, no gatherings over 15 people until the summer's over and then they're going to reevaluate. So yeah, like I said, roll the punches, do what you do. And even without that, we do have this platform to connect with everybody on. And this week we connected with someone who is uh, quite interesting, in my opinion. Um, he, his dad actually helped get your grandpa into the sport. Yeah, we're, we're talking about uh, Rick Fraser. Uh, Rick's a guy that I've watched forever. Uh, you'll hear in the interview. I mean, he's, he's won everything. Uh, uh, um, just short of a stampede. Uh, he's been close many, many times, obviously luck of the draw, those types of things, but everything else under the sun, he's won. Uh, he's two-time world champ. Uh, he's always a very good horseman and, and a very, very competitive wagon uh, from the day he started to the, to the uh, day he left. Uh, and I mean that quite literally in every sense. So um, yeah, uh, his, his dad, uh, there's a connection there, just like a lot of the wagon families, um, just because that's how it's naturally passed down through the bloodlines. Uh, his dad, Dave Lewis, was actually, um, well, actually was in partnership with uh, my great grandpa, Max, uh, who owned racehorses. Um, and uh, and uh, I believe if I got the story right, Max sent horses down the road with Dave and along with his son, which was Kelly, which is my grandpa. So that's kind of how they got started. Um, I'm not sure if we went over that in, in Kelly's interview or not, but um, that's how they, or my grandpa got started. And then obviously uh, Dave is, is Rick's dad. So those two were, uh, their, inter their careers were, were heavily intertwined, uh, uh, racing together, uh, racing against each other, um, very, very competitive. And, uh, and to start it all off, uh, Rick, uh, outrode quite a bit for my grandpa as we go over in the in the show there so um yeah it, it definitely uh, some interesting uh, connections and uh there there was lots of good stuff that we went over in that interview so uh pretty excited for you guys to hear it i i think and we are on uh i guess not the phone but on zoom with one of my favorite people to interview i got to interview him at 660 back a couple years ago and he was an awesome person to talk to rick fraser how are you doing today rick I'm doing great, Cassie. How's your day? It's uh, it's going good. I've just been working on this uh, pretty much most of the time. <laughs> oh, excellent. Right on. Great to have you, Rick. I appreciate you coming on here. I've been uh, I've been a fan of yours for forever. I can, or as long as I can remember, really. I mean, uh, as as long as uh, or, or as far as I can remember, I was a little uh, kid, and I seen the iconic wagon with the. Uh, I don't know what you call them. What are those, Rick? They're they're just swirls. Swirls, yeah. It's just the, yeah. <laughs> it was the iconic wagon, and you always had a very, very. I was just thinking this today. You always had a very clean setup. Everything, all the horses were always like in 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 tip top, um, like uh, conditioning shape. Like they were always very well maintained and looked after. Your harness and and, and uh, the wagon always spotless. Always lots of little bit of bling kind of you know you always did a real nice job of that so I you know naturally always I always noticed your wagon outfit I'm sure a lot of other people felt the same way well I, I really appreciate that but I think really what happened 
the reason why you liked it is how much candy I fed you guys when you were just little. You probably doesn't don't That's remember true. that, huh? Yeah. And I got in a lot of trouble for that after a while. Yeah. You, yeah you got, every time we went by your barn, we we would stop at Rick's and, and we would get a we usually it was a sucker. I can't remember if there's a certain color I always picked, but we always got a sucker from either you or Sue. Well, it, at Calgary that one year, uh, it was your, I think it was your sister. I think, I think it was your sister uh, and you when, when you guys would come by and we'd always give you suckers. But it, I know it was your cousins that were really little and they would come over past our barn as well. And uh, it, it didn't take me long and all four of them little Hummers would line up and they just put their hand on their hip stick out their hand and say, gimme, gimme, gimme the things. <laughs> I would laugh and give them as much candy as they could hold. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was kind of different them days. Like you don't really see any of that anymore. Like we used to come around all the time. I mean, maybe so much, in, maybe in Calgary that still happens a little bit, but we used to, I remember when I was little, we used to come all, all the time for posters and pins and, and uh, suckers and t-shirts. And you, I'm, I kind of think maybe we've got away from that a little bit uh the small kids still come around yeah but yeah. the camaraderie doesn't seem to be quite there like it was it's mm -hmm. been tapering for a long time and, and not just a couple of years it's been you know dating you know 20 years that you you can just see it when my grandfather was racing tom dorchester like at the end of the show there was a massive party whoever won bought the beer and uh that that is just kind of went away not, not that a person has to have a party but the even the camaraderie has you know it has dwindled I, i'd certainly agree that's a big word i would say surrounding your camp it, from from what i could see in in i guess what it probably in the last about five years where you were racing that's when i really started to pay attention i'd say um you always had a uh, uh, well, certainly a great family around you. Like it, it just seemed you and Sue were always like almost attached by the hip. Like maybe, maybe not uh, quite that. Cause you guys were managing two different parts of the <laughs> outfit or the barns or whatever, but you always had like a really, really big uh, team atmosphere. Like did, was that, was that obviously it was by design, but, but did it, it did it help you kind of some days? Was it more just, you like the atmosphere or, or, or what was it about you and having such a team or a, a great big team around you at all times? Well, you know, when, when you have many hands, it, uh, it makes the workload very easy and very light. But uh, when we got to the Calgary Stampede, our three kids always wanted to come, right? Even if they weren't working for us. So they would come. So that would be three more. And then uh, their friends would come to the Stampede. And everybody would pitch in. and. Uh, and then, of course, we always made sure we had two hired hands. Uh, I guess as you get older, you, <laughs> the workload seemed to get a little heavier. But uh, it, it just, that's the way it seemed to go. And it, we always seemed to have a huge entourage all the time. And it was a lot of fun, Dayton, to have all them people there. You know, and obviously on a on a good night, there was lots of high-fiving. And then on, on uh, other days when it didn't quite go so, well, there was always somebody there to pick your spirits up. And I remember Josh Keon. He, he was a young fellow that, uh, well, his mom lived in our basement when he was born, when we were in Grand Prairie. And 
that kid did a lot to keep the morale up all the time. He was so much fun to have around. Lots of laughs. He, he was just a lot of fun. Still is. So, so I guess that makes sense. It's uh, we we were talking to to Ray just the other day there, but um, we were kind of going over the discussion of like, you know, psychology and and uh, that actually reminds me of something. But you know, talking about the psychology of sports and and uh, you know, basically keeping your head, uh, I guess, above water, but but in the right um, um, mind frame. Uh, and I remember me and you having a conversation about that at one time. And uh, that was something that I'd never heard of at the time. Now that's about, well, I don't know, about three, four years ago. Um, but now it's something that I'm actually quite well aware of and, and think quite often about. Did did you, like for the for the majority of your career, did you always um, take take a big part of the psychology of sports into your craft or, or did it come later on? Uh, Dayton, I think it come later on because I wasn't really aware of it. And as you get older, you know, and more information, the internet, et cetera, et cetera, you start to understand more of that, you know, visualizing in a race and, and literally sitting by yourself in the liner or, or in a room and actually putting your hands out and driving that race. I did that a lot. And then the last couple of years, we, we thought we'd uh, get a sports psychologist, Sue and, and Kaylee, you know, thought that would help. And, you know, hindsight's always really good, Dayton, as you know. Uh, I wish I would have done that years before. It really made a difference. It really helped. And it's, it doesn't make you a better driver, but what it does is really help you stay focused on the positives because the negatives can really creep in and weigh you down and really uh, turn your career upside down if you're not careful. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, it's something like I said. I never really thought of much before, but it certainly it certainly plays a part. Um, maybe we can start because um, you've had such an illustrious career. I mean, you've won almost every single show I can think of that that I've seen, anyways. So um, maybe we can start and go back, uh, rewind a little bit. How did you get started in chuck wagon racing? I mean, obviously, uh, family traditions, uh, same as me or or a, a number of other guys. But but can you kind of walk through that? Uh, maybe uh, uh, maybe when you were from a kid, and then how you kind of got into outriding and driving. Well, Dayton, uh, like yourself, I grew up in the sport, so uh, I I watched my grandfather, and then and when I was a little boy, I like little little. That's what I wanted to do. That was the only thing I wanted to do. I remember being asked one time uh, in grade three, I think it was, what do you want to do? I said, I want to haul logs like my dad and I want to race a chuck wagon. And that, that was really it. And that you know, mom married dad in 1968, I think. And we moved to Grand Prairie and that really uh, helped, helped me. I don't know if I would have ever been able to get into chuck wagons if it wasn't for you know, my dad, Dave Lewis, being there for me all the time. And uh, when I look back at all that, I watched the Outriders. You know, I, I watched the drivers a little bit. But my when you're a kid, you know, the Outriders are younger. So they're, they're your heroes. I looked at Dallas, Dorchester. I, you know, I, I looked at other Outriders that, you know, to me, close to being gods, actually, you know. 
And then once you got to drive a couple of times and all of a sudden, oh yeah, now I'm looking at the drivers. And I actually would watch film and watch uh, their hands. Uh, your grandfather, uh, Kelly Sutherland, doesn't even know. I, I, like I was watching a film of him in Calgary once and I thought, that's what you do, how to cue these things to get them to start. And all of a sudden the light turned on. You know, it's just because I would watch film after film after film. I wasn't watching the horses. I was watching guys' hands. And uh, another guy, even before I was, the last year I ran, still amazes me is Luke Turnier. Like I call him cool hand Luke, but there's a reason for it. That guy's hands are going 100 miles an hour and they're all and they're doing the right thing at every moment. You know, I wish I could have done that. Yeah, Luke was, I've always watched Luke for, for a long, long time. He was always one guy that, I mean, it was so weird. Like people can't see what I'm doing right now, but he always kept his hands in like a, almost like a box. Like it seemed like within right around his body, he wouldn't make like real big brash uh, movements or at least right when he was about to set up for the turn whereas a lot of guys will uh, you know right when you're about to set up for the turning the top barrel they'll kind of um, maybe reach over for their right lead line and they'll make a big drastic movement uh, with their body to get all the line they can and then they'll kind of let it out with the rest of their hand but Luke it just always seemed he just I don't know if he was milking or grabbing his hands were moving too fast I couldn't see and he was just it was just like you know, super speed. All of a sudden, he was right around the barrels, and then he was out, out in front. You know, it yeah. Just, and, and he and he folds up like an accordion around that top barrel, and then just explodes to the racetrack. It's actually a lot of fun to watch. When, like, if you're a chuck wagon fan, take a set of binoculars sometime and watch drivers, the driver and their hands. I know there's a lot going on, but it's pretty cool when you when you really stop and have a look at that. Uh, it's it's really interesting to see different guys how they do it yeah yeah absolutely we're gonna we're gonna start doing that something like that with that after the ninth we're gonna start um trying to trying to highlight those details because they're they're things that uh the average fan or, or people can't either notice or see and and to me it's just it's just a huge part of the sport uh or, or at least the appeal to the sport for me um so you got started out riding you were quite handy of an outrider like you had won I'm, i was looking at it today but for some reason your stats weren't like the old stats the archive stats aren't on the wpca or at least i couldn't find them on the website anymore so um i was actually going off wikipedia page which not many people have their own <laughs> wikipedia but <laughs> you have your own wikipedia page in it i don't they, i don't have it somebody else does that i i have no idea how that started or who did it i have no idea i believe it but you, so uh, one thing I, I know that you accomplished was you won the Calgary Stampede outriding for your dad. Can you oh, talk a little bit about that. Dayton, uh, that was, that year was magical. I, I'm going to rewind right to the spring because okay. mom passed away that spring and we had, uh, I think, two weeks after her funeral to the very first show. So the horses only had got two weeks to work into them and we had, Dad had four wagon horses. That's it. And we had two outriding horses. And uh, that's what we went down the road with. And he won Wainwright. Grand Prairie, it wasn't a very good show. Uh, he, had, he, he was 
I think he had the flu and he wasn't driving very good. He, he wasn't feeling very good at all. And then, and then he's cranking on a grain auger just before, uh, just before, just after Grand Prairie. That's what it was. He was cranking on the screen auger and it slipped out and it came, spun around, hit him in the wrist and broke his wrist. So now he's only got one wing. So uh, we get, I drove at one show and I should have let Ralph drive when, in hindsight, probably would have won the show, but dad won, won uh, Wainwright. And then we went to Pinocchio and it rained just about every day and it was just miserable. We went to Calgary and like I said, he had four horses and that's it. We borrowed uh, two outriding horses from the late Joe King. And so we had eight horses and uh, I'm not gonna go through everything. We can maybe go on, talk about that later. But uh, I remember, and I, I can tell you, Dayton, as I'm telling this story, I can still count the steps going to the top barrel in the horn boom. Yeah. And I, ho I rode a horse named uh, God of Winnet. It was a friend of dad's, Doug Streeper's horse. And he was an exceptional outriding horse. And I, just a, oh, he, he, was, he wasn't a big horse, but he was an exceptional horse. We come off the bottom barrel and uh, dad had the rail and Kelly was too wide and Reg was three wide. And Tommy Glass had a ton of run. And Tommy turned slow that year, but he could really run. And, I remember going on the backstretch and I'm, I'm right behind Tommy and I'm watching Kelly, your grandpa. He's looking because those are the days of the old stove rack sticking out and mm -hmm. he's judging between his stove rack and dad's stove rack where he could fit in. And he pulled and he actually pulled to protect the rail for my dad. Cause uh, like my dad and your grandfather were, were really good friends. Like they, Absolutely. yeah. Uh, they they went back to when Kelly was just just a, a boy. That's and, who started them. Yeah, and Kelly pulled and ducked to the rail. Tommy, he had to go around Kelly, and we turned for home. And Dad, you know, he has his broken wrist. <laughs> he has the lines actually weave through his fingers, so he turned the top barrel. I don't know how he ever pulled them up, but. Uh, he only had one eye and his right eye was gone. So I, I can still see him looking. We're going down the home stretch and he looks to his right. And of course, you only got half the vision. There's no outriders, no yellow shirts, nobody. And it was just like somebody gut shot him. He just shrunk in the seat and he leaned forward. And then he slowly sat straight up and he, he looked over his left shoulder this time with his only looker he had. <laughs> And he got this big grin on his face. I can still see it. And when, when he grinned, looking back, your grandfather realized that we were right behind him on his stove rack. And your grandpa moved out and led us through. And we won the first Calgary Stampede. Yeah. Wow. It's a little emotional because, you know, of all the, of the things, I, I even wrote your grandfather a letter about that. But uh, mom had passed away just shortly before that. And the stars all seemed to line up that year. And it yeah. was just one of them things that was magical. You know, I, I, I can see it happening when, uh, you know, we watch the NHL playoffs and the team all comes together all of a sudden out of nowhere. And they, it just 
just works. And that's just what it was. How old were you when, when that happened, Rick? Like when you guys first won? I think I, I was 21. I think something like that. We, we went a long time without, dad went a long time without winning the stamp. He got close several times. Yeah. The one time he should, should have won the thing. He's, oh man. It, everything is always, dad was always, oh, it's good. It's good. Well, the, the single trees on the lead double trees where you hook the horses to didn't have any iron on them, just wood. So this horse named John, the horn blows and he just cracks her, busts a single tree. Well, <laughs> he runs on the outside of Ralph to the fourth turn. He only has three horses pulling. Yeah. And out the back door he goes and Ralph wins Calgary. And it's just one of them things. Yeah. But uh, he had come second uh, a couple of times to my grandpa too. I remember that grandpa always yeah. telling me because uh, we mm -hmm. talked about it on an earlier podcast as well. But I remember grandpa, or grandpa got his start uh, with Dave um, like when he was about 14 years old. And then so I remember him always telling me that they are working off of one another kind of thing. And And I remember him telling me he was always – just there he was always just kind of knocking on the doorstep right and then i i just can only imagine what that would feel like to finally uh uh like because that was you know later in his career to that's finally right. just just win the big one to win the one that you've always been been uh waiting for and to do it after such an emotional roller coaster the of a year i could only imagine uh how intense that would be it, it was uh you know, I haven't even got the right adjective for it, but it was like relief. There was joy, uh, contentment, all wrapped up in one that day, that evening. Yeah, it was. I couldn't even sleep the night before. I, I just, I couldn't. Just, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I've only, well, actually, no, maybe I've been in two now, but I, I mean, I can, I can, I can relate to your uh, nerves of riding in one of those dashes for the first time. It's, it's absolutely just, I, I'm not a nervous guy. I don't, I don't get nervous. I, it's, everything's just kind of like a product of the events that have, have unfolded before. Like, it's just kind of the way I look at everything um, and, and whatever happens, happens. But uh, for some reason, whatever uh, stories I, I tell myself to make me think that they all didn't work when it was $100,000 on the line. I mean, I was, I felt like puking. I was just almost numb your whole body. And then, like you say, just a plethora of emotions. I mean, I just, uh, it's just such a, such a special, special race for, for our sport. That's, that's for sure. It is. And especially when you get to ride, you know, for your, your uncle or, or mm -hmm. your, your dad in that in that whether you win or not you you got there you know so you yeah. you, you still got a chance even if you draw that outside barrel you know uh, and i go back to when i very first started outriding uh i was the first guy to outride for his grandfather at the calgary stampede i don't know if you know that but i was oh, also I the yeah i was also the first guy to be fired by his grandfather at the calgary stampede <laughs> His exact words, right? his exact words, and I think it was the first year I was out riding. You're costing me too much money, boy. That's all he said. <laughs> and that was, but I, I, I got another chance uh, the next year, and and it worked out. But uh, yeah, that one. And I was also the the only guy to ever ride for his son. You know, a, a father to ride for his son, and uh, that was Cody. And I was also the only father to be fired by his son as well. <laughs> 
Yeah. I cost like a, there's a game there. <laughs> yeah. I cost him game money and I, oh, I went out there. Dayton, I, I went and looked at the outriding horse and I thought, you know, he's not that tall. I get out there and he looked like a giraffe. And at that point, I should have, you know, tucked tail and run, but I was too much pride, I guess. And out we went, cost him game money. And Chad Harden come over to me after he says, well, why didn't you come and get my really good little outriding horse? If I would have even thought of that, <laughs> I would have done it. Yeah. <laughs> I should have used a motorbike. Maybe I could have caught him. <laughs> that was in Rocky Mountain House. That was only, I mean, would that even be five years ago now? Yeah, it'd be four years ago. So I, I think I was 50, what, 56, 57 when I, when I did that. Yeah. But you know what? When we get back to, like, Outriders, uh, Dayton, we were running in High River. And I can't remember what year. Maybe it was 1980. I can't remember for sure. Orville Stranquist, uh, we, Dad needed an outrider. And I said, I'll get, a, get us an outrider. So I went over to Orville. Orville's 60 years old at the time. And I said, would you ride for Dad tonight? And he looks at me. You know, and, and Orville didn't have an ounce of fat on, on him. You know, and he's just as wiry at 60 years old as he was at 30. And he says, you know, I really don't want to outride anymore. But I, I'll ride for your Dad, sure. So I give him a horse named Max Twine to ride it. Came from Bill Thompson, and he was a really good outriding horse. But he was on the bigger side, taller side. And uh, so I moved guys around, and I threw the barrel pig so I could watch this. And the horn blew, and Orville run to the top barrel, and he was just, he was like a kangaroo. Just one bang, and he was on. One little hop, and he was on that saddle, and he was gone. The first guy out. Yeah. But, you know, and... And dad told me afterwards, you know, he said, yeah, I really didn't want him to ride, but I, I don't know how, we were on barrel one and, and dad had a good run. And I can't honestly remember what it was, where we finished, but uh, you know, that, that was a history making ride right there. You know, he, Orville and your grandfather tell you as well, was one of the greatest athletes Canada ever had. Uh, the guy rode racehorses till he was 75 years old. He wild horse raced till he was 70. They, they were just, yeah. they just don't make him like that. You know, they, they, yeah. The, yeah. those guys, those humans like that, whether you're male or female, those kind of athletes are very, very rare. I've, I've heard, uh, well, obviously so much about uh, Orville. He's got an award, you know, within our club named after him. Uh, but for, for a guy like me, I, that's why it's important to have guys like you reiterate that because you, you just don't see it. It almost gets lost in translation, you know? Um, yeah. One thing that, that brings up for me is that uh, lately I've been, I've been kind of explaining on here uh, the, the difference between modern day outriding uh, and, and how it's changed over say the last maybe decade or so. Um, my stance is that I, I'm saying that back in the day, I figure it's more, you know, uh, cowboy-esque is, is the term I keep using. It was more about conquering the horse. There's about, uh, uh, you know, um, the horses were a lot tougher. I would, I would say they weren't as, as uh, well broke, even, even say 10 years ago, or maybe not 10 years ago, but 20 years ago, maybe, or, or 15. Um, I would say the horses weren't as, as broke. I would say they're, they were a bit uh, ranker if you will um and the outriders had to be a bit more kind of kind of rough and tough like kind of conquer the horse type um and then nowadays it's more about like speed finesse it's it's more about 
uh, saving ground. It's about not going too far past your barrel because you might have to beat three wagons out of the infield kind of thing. Uh, you might have to uh, sit on the rail and, and, and ride your horse a smart race uh, in, or, in case you have to ride around a wall of wagons. Now they, they obviously changed the, the line to uh, the outriding uh, late penalty line from 150 feet to 200 feet. So, so maybe that changes a little bit now again, but what's your stance on that? Have you seen the outriding game evolve? Uh, you know, Dayton, it, there was so many. I remember when I started, there had to be 35 outriders. Right. Around. I get a two outrider show with three wagons, and there'd be 35 guys standing there trying to get their outriding job. You know, and a lot of these guys rode a lot of horses, not just in the summertime, but there was a lot of cowboys. You know, like I look at guys like Frank Dogger and like the, the, they were the stove man years ago where they were the key guy now as you know it's the guy holding the leaders but now in when i was a kid it was the stove man because the stoves were so damn heavy you know they were 50 pounds and those wagons they start just as hard as ours did i think we can run faster and there's several reasons for that but they started just as hard as we did and uh you know the wagons that come off the ground when they when the horn would blow and big men like Frank Dahlgren would have to really heed them stoves. And they were, they were the men to get. And then you filled in around them. Uh, it, it's changed now. You know, we're looking for the, for the lead man uh, to, you know, so that we can get the outfit straight, set straight. It used to be with the four outriders, you know, the rookies got the lead man job and I like that when I was a rookie, because I liked holding leaders. He <laughs> didn't have to go so far. And I just, I seem to like that. But uh, the one thing that they do have in common is uh, fearless. They are all fearless. Because if yeah. you start thinking about, you know, what could happen, it's time to hang it up. But, you know, I think the Outriders now, back then, like years ago before I started, they, these guys were cowboys. These guys now are a lot of athletes. You know, they work in the gym and they, they do more than just ride horses. That's you know, a good way to put it. Yeah, for yeah. sure. 100%. You know, when, but I want to tell you this one story about, uh, I, I think it was 72. Dad didn't have enough out riding horses. And he bought a horse named Aim to Win off the racetrack in Edmonton. And we were in the old barns across the river at Calgary. And Aim got there the day before or the day of the show and he got there and unloaded out of the horse trailer. Now this horse hadn't seen anything, but the inside of a box stall since he was born, you know, pretty much since he was born, they put a saddle and his bridle on him and led him over to the wagon races. And like he hadn't seen more than four people in his life. And mom goes, <laughs> walks over to Richard Cosgrave and says, here's your new outriding horse kid. And Richard said his eyes were as big as a saucer. And he had to be two feet off the ground, just terrified. And Calgary was eight or nine days at that time. And that horse never caused a penalty. That wasn't because of the horse. That was the guy that was teaching that horse what to do. Like Richard Cosgrave was amazing. And I like telling this story. And I, I really do. Because I don't know if there's any guys before or since that could actually take a thoroughbred racehorse right off the racetrack and go out 
in the greatest, or, you know, in a show and get it done. Like right. that to me was, is one of the greatest uh, accomplishments an outrider has ever done. Um, we talked about this earlier, me and Dayton, and we were looking at the numbers. At a show that has two guys per wagon and four wagons per nine heats, there'd be a need for 72 rides. If you went to a show like Pinocchio or Calgary where there was four outriders per wagon in nine heats, that number would double. Do you think that increased the need and the interest in bringing outriders and new guys to the sport? Or do you think that it just, it, there's still that interest there? I don't know if there is much interest now as there was back then but the one thing when we hit Pinocchio and we had to have four outriders you know that forced us to give a lot of kids a chance and then you throw them on the off-barrel pig give them the best horse you have you know and give them that opportunity because you don't you never know that kid could have been riding a horse every day you know up to that point of his life he just needed that one break to get going you know and, and that happened to a lot of us we just needed that one one person to give us a chance to go, you know, and, and I really believe, and I, I do believe that it, it's hurt the talent pool when we went from two outriders or from four down to two, we did that at Pinocchio because we just didn't have enough guys anymore. But at Calgary, we did because the CPCA would come over, you know, and then we had a, a big enough pool to draw from for four outriders. But uh, at, unfortunately, when we made that decision, and I was part of that decision in uh, High River, we just didn't have the talent. And, you know, you don't want to send somebody out there that has never done it before, not that hasn't done it before, that isn't capable of doing it and risk injured to them or some of the livestock. You just can't. Would you like it? Well, obviously, but would you prefer it to go back to four outriders, providing that we could supply the talent? You know, you, you don't even have to go back to four outriders. You could go back to three. And right. because the stove man, he gets lost in that thing anyway. Like with the, when the tent pigs come out and to get thrown back in. And when Calgary first, when I first heard that they wanted to go with two, I phoned them and I phoned as many people as I, I didn't know many of them, but I tried to convince them to go with three instead of two. You know, you keep them tent pigs in there. You still have the exact same show. Then you, you, you're make the people in Vancouver happy because you've cut out four horses. But, uh, you know, Dayton, I don't know if you were there when we did a demo run, I think maybe two years, one year for sure in high or sorry, in Rocky, Cody was driving the horses and we used four outriders then. And, and we give everybody a chance, the outrider, the young outriders, uh, everybody a chance to throw 10 pigs over the five days. And it was, it was kind of neat to see four outriders out there again. I'll tell you what. And people don't understand this, but with four outriders, it's way easier to break out riding horses because you, your stove horse can be the green one and he just follows along. It, it just makes it so much easier. Now that stove horse has to learn to follow the wagon by himself. You know, you, you can put him up on the leaders. There's still another horse there, but when they're back there by themselves, and they're a new horse. It takes quite a bit of training to get them to, to lead up, you know, and, and to trot up nice and fast. Well, you know, 
Yeah. Well, to stay, to stay, to stay, you know, calm enough too, so the guy can right. grab the stove. And then I would yeah. say that that breaking a new horse on the lead is is just as risky too, because I've seen it uh, many times where uh, I send Rory out on a new horse and he can't get to my lead team because you know his arm and the horse are going <laughs> one way and my lead team's going the other and he can't reach him. You know, so yeah. uh, it's definitely definitely a, a factor there. I would say. Um, Back to so back to your outriding career. You had a very illustrious career. Um, how long did you ride for exactly? Do you know? I think about twenty years, I guess. Oh yeah. wow! Okay. About twenty years. Yeah, I. Yeah, we had a good go, and then near the end of my career, when uh, you know, we hadn't started running a wagon yet, uh, I went to your grandpa and I said, you know, I'd like to try to win the world championship, and he said, yeah. So I went and rode for your dad and, and uh, Kelly. And I won a lot of stuff for Kelly, with Kelly over three years. You know, the next three years, a lot of stuff. Uh, I was very fortunate, you know, to be able to ride for, for your grandpa. You know, he, uh, he expected you to be there. There was no excuse. There is no excuse. I give you a good horse. I don't even want to look for you. There's no excuse. Yeah, and... Uh, there was one time I was late and uh, I could go into that, but I, I'm not going to because uh, it, it serves no good purpose. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I explained to him what happened and uh, we, got, we got that problem all fixed up. In fact, I rode uh, the same horse every night for three years. Every single night was Minnick and Minnick had one lung and mm -hmm. we won everything there was. We won the world championship. We won set track records we won the calgary stampede and he and people say oh these horses can't run he had one lung and he was a tremendous outriding horse he the horn of glow and uh ralph and bobby go up and start their turn i just turn minnick loose and, and get on and he would come out right on the stove rack it didn't matter you know at at what time and you know i I keep telling younger outriders, you know, let, let your horse work. Well, if they want to turn to the right, let them work. Just get on that saddle horn and the breast collar and, and don't tear their face off. Don't leave their, leave their heads alone because they're trying to do their job. And if you let them do their job, you'll look like a star. Yeah. 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 I, I totally agree. I think some people may, may, I think, I think that comes down with a lot of it, like the way that, that it's kind of shifted. Like you, you see a lot more, outriders going like with uh, like Rory or Casey or Dustin Gorst I bring them up all the time on this podcast or or Sean Caffro was one always kind of like slower of a process would would kind of set the horse up you know going to the mm -hmm. top barrel get him going at the right speed in the right direction and then um, and then I think when a lot of kids come along and that was uh, more the prominent style in outriding I myself was one of them uh, the tendency is to slow that horse down by pulling on the lead line, right? But as I got older, you certainly find out that uh, the question is more, you know, how can I make this horse perform better? Not how can I make this horse perform better for me? You know, it's, it's, uh, yeah. it's how can I help the horse? So I think there's definitely a cultural shift. Well, there, uh, Mike Vegan, uh, Mike Vegan was a, a great, and the word is great outrider. And we were in, uh, I can't remember where we were. We might've been at the old fairgrounds and you know, we're, we're talking and we're exchanging ideas and, and come up with the idea of teaching a horse to rate. 
and, and people, you know, I, I don't understand why guys don't do this more and teach that horse to walk with his shoulder at your shoulder. And then when you run, his shoulder is at your shoulder. So when you go to get on, you know, some guys will jerk and they're trying to lead the horse and his, the horse's head is at your shoulder. So when you go to jump on, you have to slow down, go back for that saddle, which is three feet away. That gives that horse time, you know, to set up and turn away from you. But when you're right beside that sweet spot already, you know, you can just bang and get on. And yeah, just teach the horse to rate. And that's what I did when I was still able to get him. on. Pardon me? Well, well, that? if he's right beside you and he starts yeah. to turn, it just sucks you right into the saddle. Like yeah. It, it, and you're not, you're not going to be behind him because when you're going up to the top barrel and if you're not shoulder to shoulder and his head's way back there, you got to back up to get him and he can just spin out from underneath you and really make life miserable for you in a short time. Yeah. Certainly. Certainly. You know, uh, that, uh, Dayton, we were watching old chuck wagon films and, uh, I hadn't forgot about it, but I hadn't seen it for a while. I was riding for Mike Vegan and he had a, a really good out riding horse and you just turn him loose and get on. Like I said, <laughs> we're at Calgary, Dallas, Dorchester's on the rail. Mike Vegan's one wide and buddy Ben's Miller was a master, a master at pulling and going to the rail and hitting that hole wide open. We didn't even get to the first turn and I was already in that hole on an outriding horse behind Dallas on the inside of Mike and buddy coming behind me. I'll tell you what, I, I was looking at that thing and I was starting to pucker up again. <laughs> I was squealing a little bit. Mike, at first I hollered at Mike to move over and let me between him and Dallas and let me through. And <laughs> uh, he looks at me and looks back and smiles. Cause he, you know, he could see buddy. We had a little bit of room and he said, uh, uh, and then he just moved in and tightened it up a little more. And then the next time I, next time I hollered, I'm pretty sure they heard me up in Edmonton at the legislature. <laughs> he moved over just enough for me and the horse to get through. But uh, that was uh, an exciting ride that day. I did something something very similar. I remember I remember well because a lot of people felt a certain type of way about it when I come back and and handed returned my outriding horse after the race. But I remember it was in Saskatoon and it was a ride for Uncle Kirk and he and I was out riding a horse off. So I I purchased a horse on an IOU. And uh, I was out riding the horse off and uh, there was a very big, uh, or I wouldn't say big, but uh, a bonus incentive if I was penalty free all year. And this was a second show and I wasn't about to be taking any penalties anytime soon. So in Saskatoon there, uh, he was, well, effing off, I guess you could say at the, at the home stretch. Um, is, is the term we would use in the outriding pen and when all the emotions were high, but, um, and I, I hadn't ridden a very good race yet. I, I, usually I can sit right on the rail, the, the entire race. I just sit on the rail. I don't spend my horse. I, I, I take the philosophy is I try and save the horse throughout the entire season. Right. So, uh, you know, if you end up using a horse for 20 or 30 trips, which is, which is a lot, but if you end up using him for that many trips, you know, he can handle that because it's not necessarily exerting himself fully every night. So I try and save him all the time on the rail and, and it always, well, most of the time, like 90% of the time it works out, maybe 95, but at this time the wall of wagons hadn't disappeared. 
and Kirk was actually leaving them. So there was about three wagons wide-ish and, uh, and a bunch outriders. And I, I had come, I was sitting in the back because I'm not too aggressive till I'm ready to make my move. And uh, yeah, I only place I could go is, uh, is somebody moved out uh, too wide. And I remember the guy who was in on the rail and he had moved off the rail just, oh, I don't know, two feet, three feet. And that guy was Chad, Chad Harden. And, uh, and uh, not wanting to be late, not wanting to sacrifice my bonus. The rail was my spot the whole way. So I rode in on the inside of them guys, right on the infield, right on the home stretch, the whole deal, about two, uh, two feet from Chad's wagon. And all the outriders were screaming at me, screaming. You know, I'm a 17, I, was, I don't know how old I was, but screaming at me and just, you can't get out of there, get a death trap, right? And then, oh, it, yeah. All I remember is is Chad looking over and just <laughs> being in absolute disbelief because I don't think uh, anybody would try that uh, twice. But <laughs> learned my lesson. I wasn't late, so it it uh, it had worked out. I got uh, trouble. We were running in High River, and, and I, I it might have been the Battle of the Giants. And when you're young, uh, and I and I tell people this a lot. They send young men to war and young girls to war because you, they can convince you that you're bulletproof. But when you get older, you know you're not. So I, I'm a kid, and I'm thinking it's funny riding the rail just about every heat. You know, the old Stovracks, you could run up, and actually I would do get the horse to run with both one leg on each side of the wheel and kind of hide in between the, the rail and the Stovrack and just run there. And uh, ha, 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 and it was all great. And... Uh, we're going around into the third turn, and I'm not going to tell you the guy's name. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. I go in on the rail again, and for no reason other than thinking it's cool. And he looks at me, and he's going to put me over the rail. Like, and okay, now my heart's coming out of my ear. And I turn my bat around backwards, and I was going to start working his lead horse over it. And the thought is clear as we're talking here and said, just crack your horse once. And I hit him and he was shot out of there. He was scared as I was shot out of there like a cannon or like a, a, a cannonball. And uh, Tommy Glass come over to me after the, that night. He come and found me because uh, Tommy had lost his uh, younger brother at the Stampede outright. And uh, he come over, looked me square in the eye. He says, I like your jam, but I used to have a younger brother do that. And he turned and walked away. That was the end of that. Like there was other times when you had to. That's yeah. different when you have to than like you did. And uh, but if you're a good outrider, you will do whatever it takes to get there. You know, uh, it's just what it is. Yeah, I, yeah, I can't are, explain it. I agree. It's probably not honestly the. It's probably not an ideal situation. But like you say, no. I mean. We do so much just to, to, to be there all the time to, to make this uh, operation or the race successful, you know, so uh, I can understand guys going in there sometimes, but I don't think it's for the faint of heart uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Absolutely but, not. No. What about, uh, so, so we've kind of glossed over the outriding career. What about, how did you start driving? What, like, who got you into driving? Uh, where did you learn uh, your skills from? Like, what was it practicing like? Uh, where did you Where did you learn everything from? Dayton, this is pretty interesting that you'd ask that question because it's kind of a funny thing. Because you, you're probably going to think that uh, while well, you, you know you were up in the wagon with your dad in the spring training, 
but I wasn't. Uh, when I was a kid, I was galloping out riding horses. When we were yeah. done galloping out riding horses, we galloped the racehorses. So that was our job. And, and, but Dayton, I watched their hands. I watched my grandfather. I watched Dallas and I, I watched Ralph and dad, you know, I, I watched their hands. So the first time I ever got to drive a wagon was, uh, Doyle Mullaney had a pony wagon outfit and he was trying to sell them because he just started with his big wagon career and he was up in Grand Prairie. I followed that man around for three days, begging him to drive them ponies at Grand Prairie. And he finally said yes, just so he didn't have to hear my voice anymore. So <laughs> the first night I'm on barrel four and, and, he, and it was, it was all right. I think I got second in the race and, it, and, uh, Doyle had borrowed Jimmy Pollock's wagon and the Pollock boys had a different theory. They had these really high, narrow wagons. They figured that they didn't have to go quite as far past the top barrel to make that, the barrel turn and save them a little time. So he had this wagon there. It was, it was kind of tippy. And then uh, the barrels were set in the infield, not like they are now. Barrel one, the angle of barrel one is the angle of barrel three used to be. You know, so they they were set a little bit tougher, and I'm watching the bull riding, and I'm riding for every wagon. I'm riding for Ralph. Ralph is leading Grand Prairie, both of his outfits. I'm riding for both the dads, both the Dallas Dorchesters. I ride. I think there was 11 heats, and I was riding every one of them. But I wanted to drive this pony ranch. So I'm I'm sitting there watching the bull riding, and, and for some reason they set the barrels for the first heat, and I turned to go back, you know, because it wasn't long before we had it dad standing there and I'm what are you doing here he never come to the rodeo he said you come with me so he went out and we stood and physically walked around that barrel and he told me how to turn that barrel he said now when you get up here and you make your right hand turn you know around the top barrel the reason why we call it a top barrel and the bottom barrel is perspective from the grandstand because when you're looking at it it looks like you're going uphill towards the top barrel and downhill towards the bottom barrel. So when we're going around the top barrel, he said, you go this, now you aim for the bottom of two. <clears throat> when everything gets straight, you just ease them back and life will be good. Dayton, as I'm talking to you, I can remember me throwing my hands in the air, flailing around. I know, I know, I know. And dad never said a word. We go back to the bars, get into the barrels, the horn blows. I go up, turn the top barrel and do exactly what he said not to do. I went yeah. down right beside that bottom barrel and I made a left-hand turn, a 90-degree turn. I can still see that ground coming at my head. <laughs> and then she was lights out for, I don't know, a couple seconds. And then I can remember this one yellow wheel going by. And then uh, the next thing I knew, the first guy that had run me over was standing there looking at me to see if I was still alive or not. I'll tell you what, Dean, I'm losing my hair, but that's because uh, when they run me over, it blew the hair follicles right out of the top of my head. It <laughs> ironed me out. <laughs> the, uh, I can laugh about it now, but oh my God, the first three nights, the, the wagon tracks on my body <laughs> weren't as bad as the road rash. <laughs> you know, all the dirt on that old racetrack in Grand Prairie was about as, hard, as soft as pavement. And I just, I was burnt right from my forehead to my toes from skidding on my face. And when I tipped over, I fell right underneath or skidded underneath uh, the guys to my right, right under, right under his wheelers. And he run me over with both wheels, right? Just above my belt. 
And then his brother run me over. I had a hook print on my one side of my head, but it, had he, you know, had the wheel hit my, struck my head, I probably wouldn't have been here. But uh, No kidding. Uh, dad was so pissed off at me. Oh, he was mad, you know, because I was riding for him and, and he liked the job I did. And all of a sudden, okay, now I'm gone. I can't help. I couldn't even walk and, or barely walk. And I had, I was making a lot of money. I was riding for all these really good outfits. And that was my uh, introduction to being a chuck wagon driver. Other than hooking my pony to the, to the car hood once, that didn't turn out that well. Yeah, we, we run away, went through the bush, and we had a hell of a wreck. And uh, my, my uh, friend, Murray Bird was his name. His mom and dad were building a new house, so we went up there and got in the scrap pile and come back, drug this stuff across town back to our house. And we built a chuck wagon out of bicycle wheels while it lasted 12 and a half feet before it disintegrated. That was my... I guess that was my start of driving horses. I, but, but like I said before, they, being a chuck wagon driver was the one thing I just, I just didn't want to do it. Dayton, I could taste it. Like yeah. I could absolutely taste it. And it's the only thing that I was ever good at. Wow. So was that, was that the end of your pony career? Did you, did you, how old were you, by the way, when that happened? Geez, I'd have to do some math, buddy. So that was 1980 and I was born in 59. So whatever, how old ever I was. 21. Yeah. It, it, you know, so it uh, straightened my haircut out anyway, but that was the end of my pony career. I'm good. I don't need to drive ponies anymore. No more. None. Zero. What year did you start driving big wagons? I think the next year, the next year, Dayton, we were going to race in Grand Prairie and, uh, Ralph and all those guys were down east. I can't remember where they were. And there was Dad and Reg and Dallas who were in the last heat at Grand Prairie. But uh, I borrowed a, I borrowed two horses from Reg, one from Smokey Wilson and one from Dale Greenwood. And I went and got Dad's old purple wagon and some harness. <laughs> I had a chuck wagon outfit and away I went. <laughs> We run there, and then we went from there up to uh, Dawson Creek. I think I even the one night in Dawson, I hit the money. I was, I think I got sixth one night, and uh, you know, I, I thought, okay, this is all right. I don't know, fifty bucks, whatever it was. I, I have no idea, but the overhead was pretty small. <laughs> yeah. All I had to do was have something to eat, and if you're good, you can always find that. Yeah, no doubt. I, I remember similar when I started driving, I had to borrow all kinds, I had to borrow everything. And then it was just, it was beautiful. It was just straight money flowing in all the time. If you were good enough, even if yeah. you still got paid a little bit and then, but the game changed when you had to start buying your own stuff. <laughs> yeah, doesn't it? Oh boy. Yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. So but that Dayton, that's how, that was my first wagon experience. And then that, that's when I got to drive that, uh, a big wagon for the first time yeah was so was that considered your rookie season no no that wasn't my rookie season uh, my rookie season was 80 my rookie season was 82 82 okay yeah 
Yeah, I won the rookie of the year that year. That, that was the year that won Calgary the first time, and his wrist was broke. So when he was done, when we after Calgary was over, he sent me down the road with the horses, and I went, I think we went, went to High River, Strathmore. Yeah, High River and Strathmore, and I won Strathmore and second in High River. But you know what? You know, you can say whatever, but I had the fastest race car at the time you know and, and it's just what it is i had the fastest yeah. race car and i got hooked with guys that uh outfits weren't as good because i had no points right it didn't matter what outfit you were driving it was a point standing you know and so it was a i had a free run every night story of my life <laughs> but that but that's all right but when you get those opportunities you grasp them and you hang on to them and you make them pay because sometimes they don't come around that often and you make them pay. And it doesn't matter what anybody else says. I'm still the champion and you're not. Yeah. I still was in the wagon seat. It might not have been my horses. Might've been my horses. I'm, you know, it might have rained right after my heat. I don't care. It just happens. But I was still there and I did. it. So yeah. when you Dayton, as you move along, yeah. When you get to the winner circle, you still, you are the winner. Doesn't matter what anybody else says. Doesn't matter. Appreciate that advice, Rick. What I was under the impression you won Pinocchio in your rookie year. No, that was '83. I won. I won Grand Prairie in '83, and Pinocchio in '83. Yeah. And then and then Dad won Calgary or won the aggregate in Calgary, and we sold out that year. So when you won Grand Prairie and Pinocchio. Were you starting to, to pick up your own horses and, and dive into it yourself? Or was it, was it still your dad's outfit and stuff? They, they were, everything was dad's at that time. Dayton, uh, 19, 1987, I started, started buying horses. And uh, we ran, we ran in, in 87. And uh, I, I, I can't tell you, I, I, I just drove like, well, I didn't have much experience, honestly, and and they were a little tougher to drive the ones I had to drive. And you know, and Dad run really well with them in Calgary, and it, it was a lot different when he was on the seat than what I was. We went down to Morris, and you know, I was second day money the first night to Morris that year, and and it, so it wasn't the horse's fault, you know, it, it was pilot error. And then we get back to. We were racing in Stetler that fall, and I borrowed Dallas Dorchester's good right leader, Schiffer. And uh, we were second the first night in Stetler, and then I had a runaway the next night, and uh, things unraveled <laughs> through that. But as I look back, uh, that was 1987. And when we got home, I didn't have enough money for a down payment on a free meal. And we decided at that point, you know, we just cannot do this because I am not having my kids go without so I can race a chuck wagon and we just shut her down. We sold the, the few that we had and, uh, and we bought a vacuum truck and started a vacuum truck company and run for or run out for 10 years before we could get back into the chuck wagon business. But so, I never did forget about it. I drove horses every day in, in my mind. What did you do from 84 or 83, well, I guess you raced 83, so 84 from 87. Were you racing then? 
No, I never raced at that time. I outrode though. Outrode the whole time. Okay. Outrode the whole time, and then uh, in '87 we hit the wagon box, and uh, we damn near starved to death. And then we took up uh, the vacuum trucks, and I, I stayed in it because at that time, back in the day, Grand Prairie had four outriders, Pinoka had four outriders, uh, High River, Calgary. So we'd go down at them four outrider shows and we'd make extra money, you know, and it was good for our family that we, we can make this extra money and uh, do other things with it. Certainly. Sure. There's, there's outriders doing that today that, that have, you know, businesses or, or stuff on the side and then, or, or I guess on the, on the main plate and then the outriding, they perfected it. And now it's kind of additional income when you're sitting around uh, or the oil patch is slow or whatever in the summer. It's outriding is certainly, I tell that to every young kid I can, I, I can, uh, or that'll listen to me is that, you know, that, that it is an advantageous uh, uh, position in the sport. You can make a heck of a good living just, you know, once you get good provided, but uh, mm -hmm. there's a lot of opportunity out riding, driving, maybe not so much. That's more of uh, for the ones that <laughs> really want to do it, but uh, out riding, I mean, you can make some pretty good cake. You can, and you can pay your house off doing that. You know, you, you take that money that you make, you take 80% of it, put it on your, on the principal of your mortgage every year. And in a, in a very short time, you know, yeah. you're all of a sudden you're debt free. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Only mistake I ever made is I wish, I wish my dad or grandpa took all my money from when I was 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, probably till now. Because <laughs> I, I, when you're that young and making that kind of money, I, it just. Well, it, you know what? Dayton it doesn't matter. We did the same thing when we were young, like you. We'd outride all win all week long, but the the or weekend long, and, and the shows were three days at the time, and then we would have a hell of a party until, well, we're broke, and it's the next show. Yeah. yeah, 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 a lot of fun. There's no doubt about it. So when so you took the ten years off? Did you come exact or back exactly in '97? '98, I came back. '98, okay. Yeah, we started running in 1998, and we made the Calgary Stampede. It was interesting because. Uh, I didn't know what to do. I, I, we knew we were, were going to run a wagon the next year. So we didn't really know horses because it's all horses, right? So I was, I was, uh, dad was down in Phoenix running racehorses and I was going to borrow a liner and go to Vancouver and buy 20 head and see what we got out of it. So I phoned dad and I, I we finally connected. He says, he said, Ricky, you, you phoned Ray Crotto senior he says uh he's an honest man he sold me some good horses and he won't steer you wrong and he's selling out so i i phoned ray and i and i talked to him and i go over and and it had warmed up and so the whole yard was ice and he said well and it was obvious we couldn't drive anything and uh he said you know he says you you're not going to win any shows with these but they'll get you to the calgary stampede and i I had a horse trailer and I got, I bought, uh, I think I got five horses on the deal and I could fit four into this horse trailer and I brought them home and I am unloading them. And, uh, when this little horse chestnut horse come out of the, out of the horse trailer, dad looked at this horse and I, to this day, I don't know how he knew, but he looked at that horse never seen him before. He said, that horse is worth the price of the whole outfit. 
how the hell did he know? And he was. His name was Fancy Oates. And Ray was right. I didn't win any shows, but I made the finals of three of them with those horses. Ah, it, it was absolutely amazing. Uh, and we, I bought a horse from a guy named Dalton Rooks down in Vancouver, a couple of them. And one was a gray horse. And it, the horse was a, a Mexican horse, actually, is where he came from. And they must have drove that horse when they broke it. Because when we hooked him up the first time, Dad said, well, we'll hook him on the lead in case he kicks. Said, okay. And it was like he'd been there his whole life. Went out and uh, we made the finals at Edmonton, Grand Prairie. Uh, maybe it was two shows. I, I can't quite remember. But it, buying them horses from Ray Corrado Sr. was uh, a, a very wise move on my part. And Dad gave me some great advice by calling him and, and Ray was an extremely good horseman and very honest. Yeah, I have a lot of respect for Ray. I know he's passed away, but I still hold him in very high esteem. Wow, okay. And then, so in 98, and then you won the world in 03 or 04? 04. 04, yeah. that's a quick turnaround. That's six, I mean, on your sixth year after taking 10 years off, that's a quick turnaround to dominate the entire tour to the point where you win the world championship. Yeah, we had a pretty good year that year. Yeah. You know, but I, I, have, to, <laughs> I have to give a lot of credit at that. And, and in 2000, dad passed away. Uh, so, you know, I didn't have him to lean on anymore. So then I had Dallas Dorchester to lean on. And, you know, when you get a guy like Dave Lewis and Dallas Dorchester in your corner, you're very wise to take their advice. And, you ask all the time and never stop asking. And uh, Dallas would break horses and he'd sell horses still at, at that time. And I paid more, you know, more than you would if you went and bought the horse green. But hell, I didn't have to go to Vancouver and look for horses. Dallas would say, these are the three best ones I got. This is what I want. If you want them, take them. And I would always take them. And uh, it really, really helped. Yeah. Really? So that's, that's how you say, so you, you more, you didn't necessarily buy organically as, as a lot of guys do. You would, you would more buy these uh, um, proven horses, I guess you could say. They, they weren't even really proven because they were never driven on a race, oh, but, they were, I see. but he drove them. You know, there was a couple of years he was doing the, the demonstration run in, in Calgary, yeah. you know, and that really helped you get, especially as you know, you get those horses up first year in that fishbowl at Calgary where there's all them people right around them and all that energy from everybody. And, you know, they can lose their concentration quite easily. But once they've experienced it and then they come back, it's a lot different for them. And uh, so I would do that. And then other horses that I had bought, I would give to Dallas just to drive in those demo runs. And it, it really helped, you know, just what it is uh is a funny story it is funny and it isn't uh dayton you know uh like you can ask your your grandpa uh kelly about you know the knowledge that dad had about horses and it was a lot now huey sinclair you know probably paid him the greatest compliment he said you know rick your dad is as good as any veterinarian around so uh we're, we're hooking 
it was our second year of racing and we're driving and I ask a question and there was only him and I in the wagon going around the track, just, you know, getting them ready, loping along. So he told me why we do it, where he found out why we did it the way we did it. And Dayton, when that wagon stopped back at the barn, the lesson was over. I asked him another question. He shrugged his shoulders, hook another outfit, go out on the track. I asked him a question and I come home. I was so excited. I finally, I said to Sue, I finally know when to ask him a question because he just always just shrugged his shoulders. I don't know. I don't know. And uh, so I, I got the foundation of how to train the horses. I didn't get the really, you know, the stuff on how to get them to start and that. And uh, then that, that the one morning he just had a heart attack and found out what come next. But it, what, what a great way to go is doing what you love to do instead of what you have to do. You know, it, it's, and it, but I'm not saying I'm glad he's gone. Not by no means. He was only 63 and he went way too soon, but Certainly. he was doing what he absolutely loved to do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, you can't ask for more than that. I, I suppose uh, when, yeah. when, when you're doing it, but uh, certainly what, what about um, Dallas Dorchester? Did you do much driving with him or what was it just, were you mostly doing, or by yourself. Like my, my question is, is um, Troy has a, like Troy Dorchester is still racing now has a very distinct style. Was there any correlation between those, uh, those two, like the styles, is that more of a Dorchester thing similar with the glasses or with me and my family or. Well, we like, like you guys, you hold the lines the same as I do. The same as the Dorchesters do, you know, uh, dad, I remember this one time. Like I'd run over about the 600 barrel. It seemed like at the first show we'd uh, through circumstances, we didn't have our good lead team. The second year where we run dad tied a set of lines on the mirror of the truck in Grand Prairie. You can ask Mike Vegan this. He says, he points at Mike. He says, you get over here and, and me as well. And he grabs the lines and he's holding these lines. And he said, this is what you do. And I, you know, I tried and I just, I, I couldn't do what he, he, if he needed, if dad needed to milk a line or reach over, he just did it. And his hands were, were like loose, just fast, you know? And uh, so he would try to tell me, you know, what to do, you know, show me what to do. Dallas was, after dad passed away, Dallas, you know, I really leaned on him. And he would really help as well. Uh, I remember the one year Dayton, I had really thick, thick lines. And, and uh, then I had sewn rubber on them. So you have lots of grip. And it was like your hands were full. And so Dallas get in the wagon once. And we went, I can't remember, he was going to drive an outfit. And he says, no wonder you can't drive with this shit for lines, he said. <laughs> so... So we get to his place. I can't remember why we end up there at his place during the, during the year. And we, him and I went out and found a thinner set of lines and we're going to Pinocchio. And he says, Oh, now you got new lines, new attitude, get at it. So I'm driving up the chute, you know, at Pinocchio, it's quite a ways to go from where we're camped up to the racetrack. And Dallas is sit, standing on the, along the fence. He was on his way up to watch the races. And he looks at me, he said, this is the advice I got that day. It was great. He said, dig your head out of your ass. <laughs> That's what he said to me. 
<laughs> so, oh my gosh. But uh, De Dallas, yeah, he, he, he taught me some really neat things. Uh, and, I, and when I did this one thing, Dayton, uh, I'm going to tell you what I did, what he taught me. Uh, when I would do it, it was just like he was talking to me in my ear. He said, if you're ever going around the bottom barrel and you think you're going to hit it, he says, you put your lead, your lines, lead lines in your, in your left hand and you hold them, take your right hand on your right wheel line and yard on your right wheeler and it'll move your wagon over a foot and then you give it back to it. And there, you, it was countless times I would be going to run over the bottom barrel. I would do that. You know, it looked like all the lines were in one hand, but you just quickly put that right lead line in your left hand give your right wheeler a jerk and move that wagon over a foot. You know, maybe even six inches was just enough to get around that thing. So, you know, and I can still remember him explaining that to me. Yeah. I, mm -hmm. you, I'm same, similar to the conversations we had. It was mostly, uh, I think on your kind of uh, retirement year, uh, the last year you raced, I remember having a lot of conversations about, you know, driving techniques and, and again, with the, the psychology, the sports psychology and that type of stuff. Um, you always seem to, to switch like styles, which is, which is foreign to me personally, but you seem to switch. Like, um, I remember for you, like say, say an example, like on the four barrel, you would do something with your hands and your lines, uh, where, so you could kind of get out of there quicker versus like, where, where the way I drive is I just, I always do the same thing almost every single time. I might, you know, give a certain horse more line or something like that, or, or turn a little bit harder or, or adjust things that way. But I'll never, ever, ever just mess with my lines or, or, or do things like that. Was that something that you always did? Like, were you always being like creative, innovative, same as like you were with uh, um, putting the, the three lines in the one hand and moving the wagon over? Uh, by steering your wheel team over? Well, I, I, you know, when you listen to some guys like Reg Johnstone, like Reg was ar arguably one of the greatest turners of all time and start and turn. Yeah. You know, he really was. And, yeah. uh, you know, you listen to, you pick up nuggets from uh, different drivers. And, you know, Reg taught me, and he didn't even know he taught me, but he said, you drive in the barrel four with your leaders offset and you can make a quick turn. So I would start doing that. And another guy that would, he never give you much advice, but he would leak like a sim when he won something. And that was your grandpa. He'd be so excited. He'd ask him something. He'd tell you all about it. And then he'd calm down and that was it. But uh, I knew when to ask. So. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. Oh, yeah. yeah. How many times to use a horse and when they give you the biggest run? I think we set the track record at Dawson Creek and I was riding for your, your grandpa. And uh, I can't remember what the question was, but I got a, a really good nugget that day. And it was just sweet. Yeah. And uh, I always laugh and I, I tell people, you know, that exact story about Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because he kept his, and it's right. You know, you look at NASCAR guys, they don't tell anybody else what they're doing. But uh, once in a while, they'll leak. So pay attention. When they're leaking, yeah, you can get a nugget from them. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I, I kind of question myself uh, doing this podcast and then, and then talking about 
talking to all these guys, giving away a bunch of secrets because there's a, there's a lot of stuff like information that we've done in the last podcast, even, even stuff like uh, you saying that Reg, you know, taught you to drive in with your leaders offset on the four barrel. That might make some monsters if there's some kids out here, like, you know, Lane Flat or some young guys listening. You, you do that. <laughs> yeah. And I told you to do that. Yeah, I know. I think I, I have. But you know what? When you're not used to that, you know, you're thinking, well, boy, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the worst thing that can happen, it doesn't work. Yeah. You run over the barrel. We've all run over barrels. Yeah. I don't know if anybody run over more than me, but uh, yeah. That's certainly a problem I've had in the, in the past. And it's like, I won't usually generally take chances. I can get, I can get right tight to a barrel. I can make a nice barrel turn, but only if everything's clicking at all at the same time. And I, and I have a hard time taking that leap of faith and, and trying to execute a very tight turn. If the, if I'm unsure about the outfit or the horses or, or uh, whatever. And the only reason I can think uh, for the reason that would be is because you, the pressure is always to make Calgary. Cause you don't know if you're coming back next year, if you're not in Calgary, you know? So I don't know if, I don't know if the landscape has changed or, or, or the sport has changed, but I've certainly struggled with, uh, you know, taking those chances, taking those risks to, to get out there first. Cause my grandpa harped on that, you know, forever. He just said, that's where you're losing all your distance in the barrel turn. Yeah. Well, it ain't easy to, to skin the barrel every single time, Kelly. Like, you know, it, well, you know what, when, when Kelly was your age, you wasn't skinning barrels either. Neither was I, we were going a long ways past it, you know, and, and it just was. And, and there, there's times when, uh, these veteran drivers like Kelly and, and dad, you know, they would try and be telling, telling us what to do. And it was, it was a way they said it. It just didn't make any sense. It didn't click. You know, yeah. your information was right. It just, it wasn't getting And then somebody else will say the exact same thing in a different way. And all of a sudden, Oh, that's what they were talking about. I can do that. Yeah. You know, you know, and, and getting, like tight barrel turns and that, uh, as long as you're going fast. Yeah. Yep. As long as they're tearing that, tearing the pole out of the wagon when that horn blows and they just rock her. There is nothing other than, other than driving a, a dragster, which I've never got to do, the feeling of four horses when they start and they all start together and they just lift that wagon off the ground. Like when they did, they were doing some uh, work. Uh, designing a wagon pole a few years ago when we we're in High River and this engineering student come out, put some sensors on our wagon. And I don't, still don't date know what they were. They, he put one inside the box, one on the reach, one in the pole. And he come back the next night and we'd one day money off a of barrel four that night. He come back and he was so excited. He said, you know, your four horses put out more torque than my car does. You know, not for very long, but for that moment. You know, and, and so that's what I'm talking about. When the horn blows and them things just rocker, and when you, when they everything works good, there's zero effort. It's just so easy, you know. And those days come along, and they're pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good feeling when the horses are just working, and you don't have to do much. They make you look good. You look like <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You do a lot of. Sometimes there's a lot of driving that happens in a short time, and. Those aren't the fun trips. The fun trips is when they just all, you go to that top barrel, especially on one, you know, and, and you just, 
gather the lineup and it's just nice and smooth out onto the track and you're gone. Yeah. yeah. Something, something I learned from you actually, just, just more from afar from, from watching was actually like, I always had that drilled in my mind from, from my grandpa, like him and Reg were always very similar. At least that's what he made it out to be in the way that they turned the barrel. Like it was always uh, as tight as you can is, is, you know, skin the barrel, get out there quick, straight up, straight back. A lot of like kind of what Luke Turnier does, but yep. then I, when, you know, I got a little bit older, started watching, paying attention to outriders, like you said, but, I started watching you and this was around the time when you were winning or close to winning, especially like maybe even like 2013 when you won the world then. Um, and you weren't necessarily skinning the barrels every night, but you were making a, you were making like kind of a, I don't know how like a, like a swooping turn almost, but uh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't make like a two point turn. You know how like sometimes when you, yeah. when you go to the top barrel and you almost lose momentum, you know, mm -hmm. like you would just almost keep that momentum uh, and then you, like you said, you, as long as you were going fast, like you, you were still beating guys and way out of the infield, everything like that. So it just kind of made me think of like the barrel turn in, in different aspects, you know. Everybody has, you know, each driver has their own thing. Like your grandpa, Kelly, and uh, Luke Turner, they go straight up beside their top barrel and straight back. I was, I always like to go up you know, close to my chalk line and make a big loop so that there was, because it was my theory that I've already started that wagon once. They Like the horses have already started at once. Why make them start it a second time? Right. You know, because when you go up there and it stops, you have to take more energy again, the same amount of energy to get that wagon rolling again. Yeah. And I, and I just, I like to make a big swoop and that, well, that's what dad called it. And that's just, how he taught me. Uh, it, was, it was a funny thing, Dayton. Uh, remember Luke's great left leader, Port? Do you remember that horse, Port? Yeah, I do. So I drove, drove Port for Luke in Dawson Creek. He, Luke had got hurt. And he was on barrel one. And it was every, every uh, heat was a dash. So I'm on barrel one. And Luke said, Rick, whatever you do, do not take a swoop with these guys. Because it won't work. So I pull in to on the barrel one and I just get, and uh, the outrider, you know, grabbed them. And I never even got a chance. They, they hardly, barely stopped. And they, and just as I grabbed them, he just pulled their heads to the left. So their noses are pointed at the top of two. And I was going to say towards the barrel before I even got stopped and the horn blew. And I went up and I was right on that chalk line. I took about a quarter of an inch of line and just stood there or sat there. And I'm thinking, Luke is going to kill me if I run over this barrel and cost him, you know, whatever, a thousand bucks. And I make this big asshole soup. We could have harrowed the infield the biggest loop I had made with these things. And I come back and I, I drove back to the barns. I didn't even want to look at Luke. I just, we unhooked and I just walked away. I didn't do a loop, honestly. And I don't know if I've ever told it. I did not do that on purpose. It was just one of them things. And, and uh, you know, it, making that's just how how i drove dad taught that's what dad taught me to do uh the one thing i wish i could have did with my hands was milk the line mm. you know like you and i've talked about that milking that line you never lose it or miss your grab when you're trying to grab slack on that right lead line and a lot of people don't understand what we mean by that is because your wheelers are so close and the leaders are so far out there 
you have to actually reach up and, and turn them before you turn the wheelers so that the leaders have a chance to turn because if the wheelers turn at the same time as the leaders, the tugs actually get tight around the leaders' butts and kind of pull them sideways and you can't turn properly or fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, that's what we mean by when we say we're grabbing slack or you reach behind your hand and slide that line up and then pull. I watched dad do that one time in, in, uh, we were in Stetler and, uh, Kirk, your uncle, he asked dad to drive his outfit for him because Kirk had to go to a wedding, I think up in Grand Prairie and, and we didn't have outriding outriders there at the time. So I was holding Kirk's lead team or, or for dad and the horn blew. Those leaders never even wiggled in the air. And that wagon come off the ground probably eight inches. And that those wheelers hit them leaders right in the ass with a double tree. And dad took, I'm saying three or four feet with his left hand, reached over with his right hand, grabbed that left lead line, slid his left hand up, and then did the same on his right hand and pushed him wheelers, leaders to the bottom barrel. And he was third day money. He come back, he had a grin from ear to ear. And uh, he tried to buy him the next day when Kirk caught home, but Kirk wouldn't sell him. So that was a nice, <laughs> yeah. But uh, that was, I mean, by milking the line, actually, you know, sliding. And some guys can do that. And dad, you know, dad could actually either reach over, slide line. He drove a lot with Ralph and Ralph had magical hands as well. Mm -hmm. You know, they, uh, but you know, like a guy like Ralph Vegan, he grew up driving horses, you know, in the logging camps and, and they drove horses, you know, when they were little kids, you know, and uh, I, I give that like Cody, my son, that that's why he can drive, I think, as well as he does is because he, uh, he drove a lot of horses when he was younger because he was in the wagon from 12 years old on all the time driving horses because he, he, he just grew too damn fast to be an outrider. So he had, he had one choice and that was, well, there was days he didn't have a choice. He just got in the wagon to help pull, pull. <laughs> yeah, that was it. I would say uh, similar to like Lane Flad too, like th those big kids that, that grow mm -hmm. so quick. There's maybe sure. Colt Cosgrave is, is another one like that yeah. really no other opportunity for him to, to be involved in driving mm -hmm. the lines, which, which maybe if you want to be a wagon driver, that works out in your favor. Yeah. And Dayton, but being an outrider, gives you an advantage I, I truly believe over guys that haven't outrode it and the thing is when you you outride and you ride for the top outfits there's lots of times when you like you said you know you have to read the race and and save your horse and know what guys are going to do and as an outrider and you've really you pay attention uh it really helps you in your wagon career because you know going in what's pretty much going to happen, you know, because, it, and as the race unfolds, you can read the race sometimes better than other guys that haven't, you know, I, had that I opportunity to outright. I think it's a huge advantage because, well, I think it's for, for a number of reasons. One, like you say, you get exposure to many races. Um, another thing is you spend a lot of time around different camps and it's a lot of personable time. So you, you, you pick up a lot of tips and tricks from like other drivers and then lastly i would say when 
for me personally, anyways, when I'm out there with an out riding horse or when I was like, uh, anyways, young, it's not so much anymore, but you know, when I was younger, like, like 18, 19, around that area, you know, it's, it's really just you, the horse and the race, everything else is just going on. Like that's the race, but then it's just you and the horse, you know? And then mm-hmm. I started to pick up uh, certain cues off of the horses and certain, certain little, um, um, things that they would do, you could read in their body language, or you could read in their, their energy almost, you know what I mean? They're not to sound corny, but you could pick up little things, um, you know, on, on how a horse reacts in the crunch time, in, like during the race, when, 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 yeah. you know, anxiety is high and, and everything. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, even so much as like you say, going to the top barrel, like it, uh, it didn't mean much to me when I was younger, but now at 22 years old driving horses and all that kind of stuff it it makes a lot of sense what's happening or what's going wrong when you're pulling on the left lead line trying to get on the outriding horse or it makes a lot of sense setting that horse up or it makes you know even things about uh saving the horse like and then experiencing the horse run further because you can feel it a lot more when you're on top of him versus when he's just you know when he's one of four pulling the wagon obviously you know a real yeah. big running horse you can very no or easily notice the difference on the wagon but on an outriding horse you can almost notice the difference every single time you know when you sit on him sit on him then you ask him at the end so i just yeah, yeah i totally agree there's a huge huge advantage to that absolutely you know and, and when you know you, you say your out riding horse for that burst down especially if your wagon's got you know a head start on you and uh you save that horse and you sit on him and sit on him, just like a racehorse you're sitting on him and you're just stalking him and that's exactly what you're doing you're just stalking him and then and that horse knows they know and people make no mistake about it anybody out there a horse understands this these are racehorses and they understand when that jockey sends them when there's, you know, they have a lot left and they send them, it, it's the same, it's the same feeling for them. And they just, they just floorboard her and then they have energy left and they just, they go for it. And, and it's a really cool feeling when you can do that. You just, boom, it's there. Certainly. The, w- another thing I learned was a, was a horse called uh, uh, HP. He was just this little rat looking horse. He was uh, out of Winnipeg, probably 500 bucks. Uh, came in a package they bought grandpa and dad bought must have bought 20 something that year uh, kind of a throw-in horse nothing to look at um, uh, just sold them last year dad did to uh, either Evan or Wade Solomon I, I don't know which one but um, one of them guys have it have him and then um, uh, HP he uh, I, I broke him so he was he was my project horse because he was wasn't worth that much he was kind of a, a a poor built little horse so they didn't think much of him so uh i guess grandpa's idea was send me out on hp and i can get bucked off or or whatever and 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 kind of figure it out i must have been 14 and uh, i rode that horse every single morning and i was the only one who ever rode him every single morning every single day of the summer i rode that horse in the mornings and there was mornings that he wasn't feeling that fresh and he didn't want to go out but then maybe i wouldn't race him around the whole time or i just work on stuff in the barrels and anyways uh, I learned from him and he learned from me. But one thing I taught to that horse is I never had to pull my whip once. I just talked to him all the time. I just, I would get, he was kind of small so, and I could kind of get right up uh, next to his ear 
I mean, you taught me that actually. I, I would kind of peek below, uh, just above his, uh, uh, or just above his forehead there, and you can kind of look in between his ears, and you can watch the whole race, and you don't get a lot of dirt and stuff, uh, and you can really sense the horse well that way. And I just get right up in there, and I could just talk to him. I could just say, "Okay, HP, okay, HP," and I, he could sense the emotion in my voice, and then yeah. we would start to accelerate. I never had to pull a bat on that horse once. He could just maybe when we got a little bit older, when the <laughs> We didn't want to work as well, you know. I had to push him a little harder, ask a yeah. little more. But uh, the early stages, that I mean, I could just talk to him, and uh, that's something that you always did uh, with with whistling. Well, the uh, yeah, the whistling, I I don't know where that came from. It, it just something I, I learned that I think in grade five, and uh, it, it sometimes I thought it was an advantage, and there was other times it was a huge difference advantage because people would whistle in the grandstand and mess around. Mm -hmm. uh, I had that one time a guy whistled in my big right wheeler, clawed the back legs of my, uh, of my right leader. I could have took a stick and beat whoever that guy, whoever he was, or because he crippled my horse for no reason, you know, mm -hmm. and sometimes it's, it's better for them to just to hear the horn and use your hands to cue yeah. than, than to whistle. Yeah. Whistle going around the top barrel. And once you get out on the track, you're running all they got anyway. You know, yeah. they are. And, you know, it's funny because we all, you know, we call it throwing the lines at him. I don't think it makes any difference. It just makes us feel good. Yeah. You know, just just what it is. Because they're running as hard as they can anyway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, it's funny that you mentioned that because I remember asking Jason once about the um, – about the reins and that and asking does it make them go faster and he said no it just makes me feel like i'm doing something and like, <laughs> yeah. okay it really doesn't they're giving you everything they got yeah and you know and, and you know it, it's not like a it's not like a buggy whip that because you you can't hardly hit them hard enough with it with the lines that are in your hands to kill a fly really it just, it makes us feel good. Like we're doing something really. Yeah. Now, I, how long were you and Sue together before you started driving or has she been with you the whole time? Oh, the whole time. We got married in 1984. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's when her, you know, she got really lucky. She married me and she became a gypsy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't ask her. <laughs> no, uh, you know, and I tell the people this, uh, there's people in your crew, sometimes it's a driver, sometimes it's not, that's the hub of the whole deal, that holds the whole wagon wheel together, she was the hub of the wagon, I was just another spoke in the wheel, no different than the hired man, no different than the outriders, but Sue was the hub, and she really, you know, she always kept everything together and and that she never pushed never bitched never complained but was always there to support always when we first started wagon racing like she she'd seen it but she never had uh really anything to do with it and i just give her the outriding horses and there you go get going go over and whatever you do don't get kicked that was the advice you got I'll see you after the races. Yeah, Cassie. But I'll tell you what, and, and I and I have no problem saying this. I'll take 
take the gals of the chuck wagon world and I'll put them up against any other gals in any other sport or anything, anytime. These women are beyond, beyond uh, anything you want. It, it, they're there to help you. They're there supporting you all the time. They cook for, for us. A lot of times we don't deserve it. They drive vehicles that they have never driven before. They learn how to back them things up around corners in tight areas that most people can't even drive a car through. And these girls get in and drive these things and their every camp can tell you the same thing, what their, their girlfriends or their spouses will do for them. You, you know, and, and they're there, they work on the horses, they're beside you every moment of the day. It's, it's absolutely incredible what these girls can do. Absolutely incredible. And most of them, most of them raised a family at the same time. And, and I'll say this, and all good kids, because I'll tell you what, as these kids grew up on the chuck wagon circuit, and not just mine, but this little bastard I'm talking to right now, they grow up with respect for their elders, and they have respect for their peers. You know, they, they grow up with core values. They, they grow up with uh, uh, time when they have a lot of responsibility when dad and mom are gone to a tarp sale and I got 25 head of horses to look after, 30 head of horses. I'm 14 years old and dad's expecting me to get this done and they do it. They don't bitch and they don't complain. They get a couple friends to come over and they help. The friends think it's great because it is great. It's the greatest life there is. There is nothing in this world that was ever better than being a chuck wagon kid. You grew up as a gypsy, but you grew up with respect and honesty. I, I couldn't agree more. We talked about that uh, not too long ago, actually. Uh, it certainly um, certainly made me uh, the, the man I am today. I mean, and it wasn't just, uh, just, wasn't just my family. It was a, uh, just a huge, huge, one big family, actually. Uh, now I'm talking about the, a chuck wagon community as a whole, but, but that raises a chuck wagon kid, you know? Yeah. I, I, I'm going to tell you a little story because you were pretty little. You might remember this. Should, okay. have, should have beat your ass with a stick for this one, but uh, I don't know. You, you were, you were really young and I, I don't know. You might've been four, maybe five and whatever. Your mom and dad said you couldn't do something, whatever it was. And you took off down into the river at Calgary and you're mm -hmm. hiding and we we're panicking and, I'll tell you what, you have no idea what happens when uh, the gypsies think they're losing one of theirs. So I, I sent, your dad and mom are frantic, I sent a couple people to different gates. We'll phone you when we get, we find out. And I can still see what happened here. Like the... <clears throat> Your dad and Jim Nevada never really got along all that well. They didn't hate each other. They just didn't get along. But there's one thing that this is why I love telling this story. We are looking all over for you. And Jim Nevada spies you down in the river. He jumps over that chain link fence with razor wire on top down into the river, which had to be 15 feet. He said, your dad's looking for you. And he bailed over that. I can still see him dropping 15 feet down and running over and grabbing you and making sure you're safe and taking you back. 
that's what it's like. I, I do remember that. I remember, well, oh, sir, I remember just like, I remember why I was down there. I remember, well, what, what happened actually is some older kids took me down there and said, you like oh. told me we could go swimming in the river, which oh. wasn't, wasn't the truth. It was too dangerous. And, but I didn't know the difference. And anyways, I didn't know really what was going on. I was just making new friends, right? Just a little oh, okay. kid. Yeah. All, all I remember I is uh, coming back up and, there was cops looking for me and everybody's crying and I just, I, and then they, then they made me sit in the trailer for a while and I couldn't go anywhere and I had no idea <laughs> what's going on. I didn't know anybody was even looking for me. I remember it just like, yeah, I yeah. do. That's funny. I totally forgot about it till you, till you told me, but yeah, that was a big, uh, that was, that a, was a big well, deal. People were scared. You know, I was just, yeah, we were, ter we weren't scared. We were terrified. And I'll tell you what, that's, that's the community. And that's one thing. That's one thing that has never changed, and I don't think it ever will. Like, yeah, well, we, you know, I'll get upset at somebody about something, but when it comes down, the push comes to shove, I'm there to help with the horse. You're damn right I'm there to make sure you, the kids are safe. It was the greatest place to grow up because you had 36 sets of parents, 36 sets of uh, aunt and uncles, and even grandparents throwing in. So if you were up to no good, it didn't take long to get straightened out and you had respect. Respect for property and respect for people and respect for animals. Yeah. There, there's just nothing, nothing better. I, I yeah, I know I 100% agree. I, I wouldn't change it for the world. Me, <laughs> no. that. Me, me neither. I loved growing up there. I loved, it was, Dayton, it was before, uh, I, this, what I'm going to tell you is before we all had all these liners and everything. And there was little barns. I just loved sleeping in the barns in a manger. And listen, you'd wake up in the middle of the night and all the horses, it'd be dark in there, but you could hear them crunching on their hay or eating oats. It's just a fantastic sound. Absolutely. So Rick, from, so you won in 04 and you won the world championship. And then uh, you won the next one nine years later in 2013. What was that? Can you explain what that stretch was like? Were you were you dominant? Were you competitive? Were you rebuilding? Uh, was it a mix of both? And then can you elaborate a little bit on on the the second year you won the tour or the world championship? Sorry. Uh, well, oh four the the first year we won the world championship. Uh, we won Edmonton that Edmonton Klondike Derby, and uh, we had a little bit of problems and. Uh, so in that fall, we had to start rebuilding again, pretty much from ground zero. Um, we were able to win Edmonton the next year in 05. Uh, and then we uh, really started, had to put the nose, you know, really head down ours up and really work with our horses. And we got close a few times, but it wasn't, wasn't just quite there. And, and your your grandpa will tell you this too. You know, it, it takes it takes skill, it takes horses, but it also takes luck. You know, you got to get the and the luck part is that barrel draw. You know, the, you got to get the right barrel draw. So if I'm hooked with you and you're the guy I got to beat for the last two shows to win, I got to get you on the outs. It's a luck of the draw. I got to draw barrel one out of the hat. You got to draw barrel two. That way, I can get an advantage over you. And Sometimes the stars line up and that really helps. 
we went through not a lot of horses, but uh, you know, we were looking for the real quality good ones. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and there'd be different things. It seemed like uh, after I won Pinocchio in my rookie year, it, it, Pinocchio was always the Achilles heel that would do something like I, I'd screw that up or, you know, something outriding problems. Uh, that really hurt quite often. Uh, but you know, when things come together, you know, like it, Pinocchio in those years, like especially 13, we ran really well there and, it, and that helped so much. Yeah. So, uh, what about some of them horses that, that carried you through the 04 and 13 season? You, I've always remembered you've always had a ton, a ton of horsepower or from, I guess maybe that's, that's more of a, a cognitive dissonance because you only notice the guys that are, that are running fast. Yeah. But, but I always yeah. noticed you, you definitely had a lot of horsepower. What were some of the, the special ones uh, along those years? Boy, I'll tell you, uh, we have, uh, Smokey and Major are buried here at our place. You know, they'd be really, really old if they were. But uh, that was a really good lead team. Okay. Uh, Smokey, you bought him from uh, Dallas Dorchester. And Major came actually, was my, my first horse. He was a wheel, left wheeler from Grandpa Ray Crotto. And we put him up on the left lead, and he was like a machine. Man, he was a lot of fun dating. If, uh, if you were following somebody, I would just take a hold of him and I'd put his nose right on the outside of their hoop, like on the outside, the right side. And just at that sweet spot, when we hit down the home stretch, I'd just touch that line and I'd whistle and he'd put his head down and his tongue would come out and go like this and away he'd go. Away. And I had the double trees so they couldn't turn very much because he outrun everything. And he'd just pack us by guys, you know, and that was one horse that really made a huge difference for us through those years. And then uh, a horse I bought, I think I paid $3,500 for him, just not, just from a fella not far from us. And his name is, I think it's Ingela, something like that, Ingela. I called him Nickel. I'm glad I did because I named him after uh, a great horse that Ralph Egan had. The horse his name was Nickel. And he turned out to be just as good, maybe better than uh, Ralph's horse. And uh, Nickel, the first time I drove him in a race was in High River on the right wheel. And we hadn't been running very good. And so I thought, you know, I've got to do something. So I put this green right wheeler on. We outturned Buddy's good outfit and won day money with him. And, uh, and then I, I bought another horse, some more horses. And uh, Ace was this horse's name. And I got them two together. And it, it was funny. Because I, I was watching films from when my grandfather, 1965 or something, and he would drive his horses out in the field, and then he'd come back in and just walk all over the farm. So I started walking these horses after we would drive and make him walk back down through the, the barnyard back to where the pony truck was to unhook. And we'd get, we'd get to High River, and I'd, we'd take our fence down and hook, and we, I'd go to go out to the racetrack, dating it. All they do was walk to the racetrack. I couldn't get him to do anything. They're walking along like plow horses. And Kirk, your uncle, he's laughing away. He says, oh, you got your plow horses open. I guess, I don't know. One day money and they come back and he looked at me and started to laugh. 
and uh, he was nickel, and I still have nickel here. I drive him on that stagecoach at Panoka now, and uh, he was he's a real special one to me. You know, uh, he he did it all for me. He I could drive him on the right lead or left lead, and then I bought a horse in uh, Kentucky named Devereaux, and he's here as well. And he made such a difference on our outfit. And we'd bought a horse. Uh, actually, the horse, I don't even remember what his name is. I, we called him Zorba. And he was this great big gray monster that we, we bought for a thousand bucks. He was actually headed to the can. And the guy from the racetrack told me, he said, you want this thing? I am. He is going to the can. And I'll, I sure I'll take him. But it took him three years to figure out what his job was. And then all of a sudden, he figured, oh, I, floor, I get to go when this sound makes. And I follow the guy in front of me. And that's all he ever did. I tried to hook him on the lead date one time. Couldn't even get him to the racetrack. It was just in the morning. Just wanted to see. It didn't, we had to unhook and hook him back on the wheel. But uh, he was another real special horse. He always he had a bunch of run, didn't he, Zorba? Zorba did, yeah. But... Uh, we got a lot of run out of these things because of the foundation that dad taught me how to get the run out of them. You know, the maximum run you could get on. Yeah. We had, there was a long stretch here Dayton when I, I couldn't figure out how to get them to start. And, uh, but I always had a lot of run. So if I got hooked with guys like, you know, Reg and your grandpa and Jerry Norm, you know, a lot of times I could, I couldn't maybe not run them down, but I could stay with them and gain on them on the on the home stretch. So doing that, you can you know slowly gather points and gain on them a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but uh, my and we had one out riding horse. Uh, uh, we had a couple, I guess. Max was one, and uh, and Tom was another one. Tom would come from a guy named Tommy Rycroft, and the little horse had broke his coffin bone the year before and they turned him out and we bought him for a thousand bucks and he was he never did i never put a collar on him i guess i should have he was a bull laddie horse and he could run man could he run uh chad cosgrave out rode for rode him one night night for me he come back he said and this i've never heard anybody say this he said you know nobody even you don't even need a rider on this horse. He can do it all. Tom got, uh, returned to the top barrel once at Grand Prairie. And Tom gets scooped, bumped by the wagon on our left, knocks the outrider off. Tom turns the barrel right behind me, comes out, runs around the racetrack right beside me. Because that's his whole life. I follow that white wagon. And that's all I do. And he stayed right there, never... Usually, they, you know what happens. They just take off. Try and win the race, right? Yeah. He just knew. He just went down to the rail and just followed. Uh, Max, this outriding horse, Max, was another exceptional outriding horse. Uh, I lent him to, uh, to Luke, the first year Luke. I lent Tom and uh, Max to Luke that, that year. And, and I don't say that... Uh, because the reason I did was we were having coffee in the morning and Luke said, you know, my two outriding horses went down and, and I, and of course I'd run over two barrels already. And he said, I'm going to switch this horse here and that horse there. I said, Oh no, you're not. No, 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 no. You're going to use these two. Just use them. And, uh, 
that Max was a neat outriding horse. The guys that rode him said it was like riding a motorbike, just weaving in and out of guys. And the, he'd run so fast. And Dayton, the horse never won but two races in Saskatoon. But he was born to be an outriding horse. It's funny how it works. I tried him on the right lead once. Should have, should have not. But <laughs> Warren went and we were right on top of the barrel of barrel four. It was bad. <laughs> not a wagon horse, eh? No, what he a, wasn't. So out of all those horses you named or, or any others, I mean, you've come across a lot of, of very talented horses. You've, you've certainly seen the best of the best. Any of those uh, that you would put up against the best there ever has been, like, a, say, the top five or top ten? Uh, I've had two right wheelers that I'd put up against anybody's right wheelers. And one was Dalton and the other Zorba. Okay. Because when the horn went, they just tore that wagon apart, never cheated, and then they'd run right into that hole, you know, and, and just drag that wagon around. And they were massively big, strong, thick horses. When I, I had to take some chips out of uh, Dalton's ankles one time, and the guy that was looking after him, throughout the summer for me, asked me, he says, is this even a thoroughbred? I just laughed. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he was another one of them. $1,000 horses that nobody wanted. Nobody. His name was uh, Earwig. And when I went, I went to Vancouver, actually looking to maybe find a brother, everybody laughed at him. I laughed at me because I was looking for another, a brother to this Earwig horse. He was a no good piece of, uh, he was born to be a chuck wagon horse. Yeah. Yeah, it took a couple of years to get hit for him to figure it out too. But when they got her figured out, boy, oh boy. Yeah. Yeah, I had, uh, oh, and Major. Major was another one, a left leader. He was uh, like a really special horse to me. Uh, he was another one, another horse. It's interesting. He, he bucked everything off there was on the racetrack. Uh, they barred him off the racetrack and that's when Grandpa Ray caught, bought him. And I think he packed him for two years before he ever got him in a race. Like he, he was a while. And we put him off the left wheel onto the left lead. And uh, he was our mainstay for a lot of years. And he was just a cool horse. And he was just like the Hulk. He was just all big. He, he looked like he should be on the wheel. He was that big. He was just all muscle and, and a great big chest on him, but he he loved he loved that left lead. You had mentioned Devereaux, and when I when I was doing my research, uh, there was a really cool story that came up about uh, when you picked him up. Um, I believe it was you and Kaylee who went and got him, and then uh, you guys ended up getting stopped in Saskatchewan. Um, but it kind of was like a full circle story because. Uh, you got help in Saskatchewan, and then you were able to race him there that same year. Do you mind talking about that? Yeah, yeah that was a, a cool story. Kaylee and I went down to Lexington and uh, bought horses that fall. And we're standing at the paddock, and, then, and, and Devereaux was a good-looking horse, Dayton. He's, I know you haven't seen him, but he is exactly what everybody wants for a chuck wagon horse. He's big, he's thick, and he's just everything you want for a wagon horse. Uh, or a racehorse for that matter and I said to Kaylee I said look at this horse I said I don't know how but that horse is coming home and she looks at me not a chance so doesn't matter we're, we're on our way home with these horses and we get pa just past the border we get to Saskatoon it is 
And uh, Kaylee says, I'm going to crawl in and check the horses in the horse trailer. And it's that big white horse trailer we had. I think we had five or six horses on is all. And uh, I said, ah, they're good. They'll be all right. No, I'm going to crawl in there. So she crawls in and, and Devereaux is making this gurgling sound. And it's shipping fever. You know, they're a virus from the stress of riding. And uh, so we call the we call the university hospital, like where they teach the, the veterinarians, which was a good thing we were there. And they said, absolutely, bring him over right away. So we zip over there. And uh, it wasn't four minutes. And there were six vets around there. You know, three of them were instructors. The other ones were learning. And he got the best care there was. They, so I stayed there for three or four days. I think I stayed right at, I know I stayed down at the fairground. And uh, they doctored on him and we got, and uh, they got him back, got whatever problem, lung infection out of him. And we were able to race him there at Saskatoon. And I remember going back after the race and the vet that worked on him, oh, I wish I could remember her name. I, I thought it was Kim. doesn't matter. I seen her at the fence. And as I was driving by, I'm hollering at her. This is him. I'm hollering. This is him. And she come over and she had saved his life. And, uh, and he, he really turned our outfit around on, on 2013. That was the missing link was him because he had so much start and run and charge. He had everything, you know, so I, I hooked him on there with that Zorba that didn't know much, but he'd floorboarder. He taught, he taught uh, Deborah how to start. And uh, we had a, pretty good go with those two that year wow what about uh i i suppose maybe this is we're, we're just almost uh two hours into this um me and you have had a prior conversation to doing this podcast and there's a reason we're we're uh i, I mean I, I wanted to bring you on obviously because you're you're a you're a um decorated wagon driver which i want to get everybody on who's who's uh um i mean I, I shouldn't say everybody there's there's few that have done what you've done in the sport but i wanted to get you on immediately uh because we're i guess working on something and uh what we're working on is kind of a three-part series that we want to bring uh to after the ninth and we're going to call it the wild wagon west tour so rick why are we calling it the wild wagon west tour well it I haven't nailed the years down yet, but I think it was 1964, 65 is when they started. Cliff Claggett from, uh, I'm not sure where Cliff was from, Saskatchewan, I think. He had a Wild West show and it, they traveled down into Ontario. One year they got as far as Boston before they were broke and had to come home. Uh, and, and there's only a few guys left that had went on this Wild West tour and they had, they had, four wrestlers. One wrestler was Stu Hart. And this is all part of the show. And they had Buddy Heaton in his buffalo. Right? Or he had three buffaloes, I guess. I, I just learned that out. And he had pony wagons and he had big chuck wagons. The first truck and the last truck had a license plate and insurance. Everything else in between had nothing. And they headed out and they headed down east to go and race chuck wagons all over the place. And I just talked to my aunt and I didn't realize my aunt Sharon was only 16 years old and took my younger sister that was uh, four years old. They got on a train and 
and they went to uh, Ontario. And I can't remember what town it was. I'll, I'll find out what it was. And the only reason Sharon knew they were there is because my, her mother, my grandmother, had sent them a letter saying, these are the dates when we'll be in this town in Ontario. So they rode a train from Pinoca down to Ontario. And uh, Sharon only had enough money to get home for her if they didn't happen to hook up with these guys because she had no more money. And uh, obviously they, they were there and they got, they, there was so many tremendous stories that need to be told about this. Because when I contacted these guys and said what I wanted to do, all they did is start to laugh because instantly the, the memory started flooding back. Uh, the, and I don't know if they can actually really tell you what they did. Some of this stuff was beyond haywire, what they did. They, you know, it just so, so like for a recap so basically i mean like a, a a circus would be a bad bad term for it but essentially it's like a like a traveling uh, imagine the circus traveling town to town but now this is chuck wagons and rodeo and all these other uh acts and then none of it was too well planned out right they were they're were more or less just going town to town and stopping wherever they ended up stopping well, Cliff told them, wherever you see my pickup park, stop and unload. That's where we're going to race. And they would load up and drive all night. And most of the next day, they'd go 400 miles sometimes. And then they'd unload the next day and race. Load all up and do it all over again. Just night after night after night. And it, <laughs> these guys, I, I remember seeing my grandmother's diary. Uh you know, like Slim Helmy owed her $1.75 for breakfast for a week. You know, the, these people had no money, none of them. And Grandma Joy told these boys, these young boys like Dallas Dorchester and uh, these other young guys, and they were just young. You know, when you get paid by Cliff, you come over here and you pay me for the meals or you're not eating here. That was the only restaurant there was. And it was a little teeny camper and she fed half the crew out of the back of that thing, you know, and the, the but the stuff, I, I can't even begin to do it justice. I'm so excited about doing this. And, and I, and I really thank you, Cassie and Dayton for letting me take the time. And cause this is your podcast to do this. I am really excited about it. I know like Gordy Dorchester was down there. Uh, Daryl Mullaney is still, still part of it. Uh, Gary Dorchester. I remember uh, 65, Gary broke his leg down there somewhere because I spent the summer with Gary. I, I don't even know if I was five years old. I spent summer with him out at my grandfather's, Tom and Joy's place. He had a broken leg, couldn't go down the road, so we were batching together. Wow, yeah, no, that's, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm excited to do it because part of the reason why we want to do this podcast is because we're, we, well, I mean, yeah, we want to we want to highlight the details of the sport, but you know, we're not we're not necessarily the NHL. We don't have a, an illustrious uh, history book or or anything. I mean, maybe we got a couple, right. but a lot of it's kind of again lost in translation. So uh, I'm excited to hear them stories. And actually, I was just at Grandpa's the other day, uh, trimming all my horses and and uh, with my cousin and stuff, and and uh, he had just downloaded a bunch of uh, old. Uh, old pictures and memories from from over the years or whatever and 
uh, lo and behold, what pops up is a, a, a picture of about, it's in black and white and is about a, I don't know, a crowd of 30 people uh, and in all this uh, old attire, it was marked 1965 or 68, I think. Uh, and, yeah. and grandpa said, this is a wild west wagon tour. You ever heard about this? <laughs> and then we got, we got going on it. So, uh, yeah, yeah I, I, I know that picture yeah. because I, yeah, my grandfather's in the bottom. When you're looking at the picture, the bottom right hand corner, and I think they'd had a few refreshments before the picture was taken. Yeah. 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 Probably <laughs> was kind of a theme back then. I could assume. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It sure was. Uh, I, I am really looking forward to the stories. Like when I, when I spoke to Daryl Mullaney, as soon as I told him what I wanted to do, he starts laughing. He can hardly contain himself. He's so excited about doing this. And, and some of the stories, I, and I'm not going to tell him because I'm not going to do him any justice, but it, it's too bad Dallas Dorchester wasn't alive as well to, to tell these. But, you know, I, I tracked down the guys that uh, were, there, were there, but they were very young at the time, but still they were there. Well, that's that's awesome. Then, then I guess we won't we won't uh, uh, break any more news. That'll be coming up shortly. Uh, we gotta figure out a way that we can uh, record it and lo uh, logistically make it happen. But uh, we're definitely gonna be working on that. Um, I've asked uh, for some funny stories about you. Uh, so I, I come oh up with a, well, I come up with they're not too bad. They're not too bad. I promise. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, they're from your friends, so uh, oh, hopefully you have no. good friends. Uh, <laughs> Rick's eyes are like, please. <laughs> oh. Well, just a, just a couple. One, I want to, I, I don't even know, I mean, I'm dyslexic. I don't even know if I can read this word. You made yourself a training wagon with articulating steering. What? Oh, yeah. Oh, geez. I about <laughs> killed myself with that. Well, I had a brainwave that uh, if you if you if the wagon had car steering in it, you know you could never upset it, right? So so this thing is all wore out to begin with. So I hooked two horses on this thing in Grand Prairie, and I'm going down the racetrack. I go to pull up, and it starts to whip. And when I mean whip, dating from side to side to rail to rail, and I'm thinking, oh boy, this is going to be a lot of road rash. So I got my buddies with me, and he hangs off the back. And just enough ballast to keep this thing straight. So I get it down here and I we moved to Wetaskiwin and I get the steering all straight, fixed up, tightened up. And I tell my buddy, there is no way we can roll this. It has car steering. So we go out to the far end of the field. We turn. And I when I landed, I know I cracked my tailbone because we were upside down. He hit the ground like a cat, blew a shoe off, made two steps and grabbed the horses. Like we were in store for a big, we're at the far end of the field. Somehow he grabbed him, thank goodness. Uh, and so after that, I widened it out, got a welder over, we widened it out, wagon, made it into wagon steering. And it was a, a lot better after that. Yeah. So, so by car steering, like you mean that, that the, the wheels moved without the pole? Or like, no, can no, you that, that? Well, when the pole turned, it would turn the, steer, the wheels you know, that they would turn like a car, you know, that not like a wagon, like a go-kart, you know, how that front axle would turn. Yeah. The front axle was stiff and the, and the, the tires would just pivot on the, on the kingpins. Oh, I see. Yeah. So there was tie rods and they, and all the ends were wore out when I had, was going to blow an outfit out on them. Right. 
So as soon as I pull, everything's sloppy. And if it moves an inch at the front, it's moving 12 feet at the back. So it, it was kind of pretty, oh boy, I thought I was going to have road rash that day. I was, I was all puckered up. I was, oh, we're not going to do this again. And you were, you were just basically trying to like innovate the wagon uh, from what no, it was before or? No, no, it was just an old farm wagon, but I have this theory that, you know, you can never tip over if you had automotive steering, but I was wrong. <laughs> oh yeah. I see. Yeah, you can roll. Learn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I've heard, I've heard that quite a few times, but I've never known it to be true. They say, oh yeah, you can't roll this wagon, but well. Well, know. yeah. Well, guess what? <laughs> yeah, you can. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What about? Uh, I actually didn't know this. I mean, it was kind of preomp too that I that I got these. But uh, uh, you you've been nicknamed the Razor, and and oh. apparently you're not thrilled with that nickname. Can you elaborate on that or how that? It's so innocent how it come. Is the one announcer couldn't say Fraser. He kept saying Fraser. So somebody in the announcer said, you know, it's like a razor, Fraser, you know, not Fraser, Fraser. Oh, and then the little light turned on and then he started calling me the razor. Nah, and it stuck. I don't know. Yeah. I, I wish it was because I turned barrels good, but that wasn't the reason. <laughs> like, it's kind of mean. Like, it's kind of, it's kind of sharp. No pun intended, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't think it was too bad. <laughs> What about, uh, so, um, so you started, you said in, what year did you start out riding, sorry? 76. 76, and you retired in? Two years ago? Yeah, do you, do you count that one when I screwed up for Cody? Well, I guess <laughs> no. so. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess. Just wagons, when did you retire from, from wagons? From driving wagons? Yeah. Two, year, two years ago. Two years yeah. ago, so 2018, so. 18, yeah. I'm not a very good math guy. I don't know how many years that is, but it's, it's a handful of decades for sure. So yeah. uh, looking back, is there anything that you would change or, or, uh, or would you just like to do it again? Well, the, you know, hindsight dating is so good. You know, th there's, there's a couple things I would like to change. Uh, there's a couple times when I screwed up and hooked the wrong horse or chose the wrong outriding horse. If I could go back and, and do that, but, uh, I don't know if I'd change really anything. I got, I got to do something very few people ever get to do in their life. And that's live their dream. Uh, most people work in their nine to five or, or their truck or, or on a ranch or whatever. And they never get that opportunity to live their dream. And I did. And I'm very, very grateful for that. Well, and you did it. You did it exceptionally well, and uh, and certainly, certainly better than uh, most. So, uh, uh, it's a pleasure having you on, Rick. And uh, can't thank you enough for your time. And uh, I guess everybody, they better look out for the Wild Wagon West tour episodes that are be coming up shortly. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. I really am. I'm excited about that. Thank you so much, Rick. This uh, th this reminds me why you were one of my favorite interviews. So. <laughs> Well, I'm glad. I'm glad it worked out. I, ho I hope it's a good one. I do. Thank you, Rick, for coming on. We look forward to everything we have uh, coming up with him. One thing I found really interesting is, I don't know, would you ever let your dad be an outrider for you? Uh, maybe for the novelty, but 
not for any more than one night. I think Cody, uh, his son, probably made the right decision in firing him. I was actually there, um, and it was the same. I believe it was the same show that Rick uh, talked about in the interview that that they brought back the four outriders for like a demonstration race in Rocky. And I believe it was all at the same show. So there was lots of uh, outriding um, uh, novelties going on at that uh, show in Rocky. It must have been a couple years ago. I forget, but I actually remember riding in uh, in the race or the demonstration with the four outriders and that was my first time of ever riding with four outriders they they axed that uh in Penopen calgary uh just a couple years before i started so never got to do that so i guess i got rick to thank uh, for allowing me to uh to do that that was just that that was one thing i took from that i was like huh i wonder how many guys who have family in the sport would let the older generation to hop on a horse behind them but uh well everybody's pretty sentimental uh in the sport that's that's uh for certain so uh when those things kind of come along it's 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 honestly uh it it might not be as emotional or 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 uh special to everybody but it it, it pulls on everybody's heartstrings i guess that that uh, is involved in the sport uh those types of things uh, it's just it's it's good to see uh, little nuances like that, you know, play out just because uh, we're so heavily family orientated. So, um, you know, it's just simple. Like I remember when I was out riding for my dad, like, you know, that was kind of special for us. And, and, uh, or, or you see, uh, you know, cousins raced against each other for the first time or, or family members or whatever. So any kind of that stuff is just kind of uh, good to see for, for the entire sport. Now, he talked a lot about crunching barrels, which any Chuck Reagan fan has seen that happen once or twice. And when you're in the stand, you go, oh, that's not good. But when you're a driver, that feeling either is exponentially worse or your brain is on something different. Do you mind talking about that? Well, usually, I mean, I actually haven't hit that many barrels. I've missed more than I've hit because usually uh, if I'm in a position uh well i mean i avoid them at all costs so what happens is um or or avoid hitting them at all costs so what happens is i usually get too out of shape where i just kind of got to bite the bullet and miss them so i i actually haven't uh crunched that many um but uh, the ones i have it's certainly not a good feeling uh because uh well the other thing though is is you know you're going to hit it before you hit it so it's just like, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, when, when you're about to rip the bandaid off and, and you, you just know it's coming, but it's not quite there yet. Like the anticipation, it's the same thing in a chuck wagon race. You can just, you know, it's going to happen. Like maybe not when the horn goes, but uh, when you're approaching the barrels, uh, you, you pretty much know, unless you're just skinning them like, like real tight and real close. And, and, uh, and uh, you're not quite sure if you made it all the way by or not. I've had that a couple of times, but uh Usually, if you're going fast enough, you can get the wagon around. It's like that, those five, not even five seconds, like those five milliseconds are in slow motion. You're like, shoot, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's gone. Yeah, it's certainly in your brain the whole time. But And, and for the most part, uh, you're not really supposed to watch the barrel anyways when you're driving. If you're watching the barrel, they always say, like the old boys always say, you're 
you're looking in the wrong direction or, or whatever, uh, look in front of you kind of thing. Um, you more so just catch it out of the corner of your eye or it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's developed into your process, you know, so uh, you kind of gauge the, the distance as you're going to the barrel and then you just kind of execute when you're, when you're, uh, I don't know how to say it, just, it just kind of all clicks in your mind. Then all of a sudden uh, you release a little bit of pressure uh, on one side of the lines and then them horses just start to turn and then you're just uh, out of there. So it just comes uh, kind of naturally uh, for guys. Now he talked about, I mean, the, it was his first year, but going to the infield and having the barrel set up and walking it with his dad, is that something that drivers do? Like, do you set up the barrels and walk it to kind of get that in your mind before you get in the box and have the horses? No, that, that's more of like a, that, that was just more of like a first time thing just for him, just because, um, you know, obviously it's his first race ever with the ponies. So it, it's not something that happens uh, uh, all the time. Um, but from show to show, the infield uh, distance and walls and or, or rails or whatever shoots um, vary from show to show. Uh, so it, it, it changes the angles a little bit on where you can get into the barrels and, and how much room you have and, and certain things. So uh, guys will kind of check that out for a show or if it's a long-standing show and they're, and they're old drivers, they, they know exactly what to expect. Like, you know, on Pinocchio's one barrel or Calgary's one barrel or whoever's one barrel, they know what's coming down the pipe. They've done it enough. So they know what to, what to, uh, uh, look for out there. So there's no surprises. Um, but what, what guys will do is, is they'll check the track conditions or, or something like that. So you kind of get a feel for what the footing's like. Maybe you want to change a horse. Maybe you don't, maybe you want to try and run three wide tonight instead of, instead of on the rail, if you have it, just cause it's too heavy on the rail. You want to save your horses and you're not too concerned about your time or something or, or uh, maybe you're, you know, you, they're just different scenarios that can play out. So guys will do that. The only guys that I know that, that go and walk the track uh, religiously is, is uh, actually myself and Chance Vegan. Only two I've ever seen, uh, two of us that I've ever seen do it. Um, and I did, I started doing it. I don't know why Chance does it. Um, I just noticed I, I've seen him do it quite often. Um, not every race, but, but I, I, I see him out there uh, and he's usually just walking the track kind of, it's like he's getting his head in the game, probably checking out the surface too, um, something like that. And then I, I just started doing it because uh, uh, just something I always did in hockey uh, for a lot of times when I was growing up, I'd go sit out on the bench or something in the intermissions or, or just tried to always, uh, I don't know if it was stay connected to the, to the ice or what it was, you know what I mean? But it just kind of kept my head in the game to kind of slow things down a little bit. So uh, that kind of carried over for chuck wagons for me. It just uh, more of a ritual or like a pregame ritual or a habit, I guess. And then you just, it, it works out my favor too. Cause like I said, then if I'm in the habit of doing that. I'm checking the race every time I'm, I'm going over it in my head and, and, uh, and just thinking about uh, all the things that could unfold. So um, that's just something that, that we do, uh, uh, just us two guys I think I remember you doing that when you played for the Flyers it's funny that you say that because that image like automatically popped up in my head yeah I always always I mean I didn't always do it but uh any any team or chance that I could I usually did it and just trying to get, if it was hockey trying to get out of the hot dressing room and, and go where it was quiet just so I could uh, uh think a little bit my mind's always spinning so it was just it's just more of a uh, uh something to help me focus I guess 
Yeah, I just remember you doing it against the Bisons. That's the only time I watched because, yeah, that was my team. But anyways, um, you talked about the mental aspect of it. And Rick actually had was interesting because he said that he had a sports psychologist come and like work with him in that. And that, that almost takes the sport, in my opinion, to that next level, to that more professional level, because it's now a common practice within all national sports. Yeah, like I was listening to one of the Spit and Chicklets episodes, which is a hockey podcast. Um, and uh, Nathan McKinnon, uh, who plays for the Colorado Avalanche, he's probably one of the top three, top five players in the league uh, in the NHL. And he come on the Chicklets podcast and he was talking about um, him having a sports psychologist and, and – uh, and he said that it really helped him have a career year or, or a career turnaround kind of, or maybe a breakthrough uh, in his consistency. So uh, there's no secret about it. Like if, if the best athletes in the world are, are doing that sort of thing, like sports psychology, uh, there's certainly something to it. I mean, we talked about it uh, in another interview, um, you know, how, like say my grandpa used to beat guys just before or before the race even started, you know, they like just kind of, messing with guys or, or certain things like that so there's I mean psychology is in my opinion at, at least half the battle like if you don't even believe you can do it or if you're worried or if you're scared or whatever um, that's where a lot of guys lose a race before they even start so uh, that's certainly a, an area Rick said it in the interview I mean it's certainly an area that that guys can improve on and it's an area that he wish he attacked sooner uh, so we could be more successful in his career. So I, I fully believe that. Am I going to go hire a sports psychologist? No, I can't even afford to <laughs> get down the road half the time. But uh, maybe if this was uh, NASCAR and uh, and a lot more profitable, then then maybe I could do such a thing. He rattled off a lot of horses' names. Did you notice that? Yeah, uh, he definitely was uh, uh, thinking about it, I'm sure, before before we started. But uh, he's had a lot of nice horses in his career, you know. Like, he's he's always been kind of one guy that that uh, has been known for his horsepower. So um, he, he certainly has, has a lot of uh, memorable horses. Yeah, no, I just found it very interesting because he could name the exact ones that made a different show or made a different season. So that, in my opinion, was just, it, it was a very cool part of the interview. Yeah, he's definitely got a, got a mind and a brain and a memory for chalk wagon racing. There's no doubt about it. That's partly the reason why we're looking forward to doing this Wild West uh, wagon tour with him. Yeah, um, I, I guess that's it for me. Anything else on your end? Oh, yeah, one more thing, Cass. Uh, so we do have a couple new shows out. Uh, or coming out, or I guess we, we prefaced the next segment of After the Ninth in, in the beginning of the episode, but uh, with the video. But uh, we have two other shows coming out. Uh, one has already released its first episode, so if you're not in tune with that, check that out. Um, it's uh, it's uh, Brian Hebson's show. Uh, it's called Outside the Wagon. He's going to be the host. Um, and, uh, I was the first guest on it. Uh, he's, he's one of the guys that obviously we're teaming up with, uh, to be a part of the WPCA and to bring the podcast to the WPCA. So, uh, naturally he's got his own, uh, uh, spot now and, uh, he'll be bringing some cool things, uh, to that show. Um, as far as I know, 
uh, and, and what I've talked to Brian, it's going to be kind of a short form uh, podcast. It won't be quite as long as, uh, as uh, these ones that we've been doing. Um, but nonetheless, it'll be interesting content and I'm sure he'll, he'll keep everybody entertained and uh, he'll bring some good stuff. And then the second show, you might as well talk about it. The second show uh, released its first episode with Caitlin Fike, and that's Women of the Wagons. Um, the tagline of the show is because the men aren't the only ones with stories from the wagon trail. And uh, I'm just excited to bring these stories, uh, I guess, to our listeners. Um, I've talked to a few of the people we're interviewing, and they have quite some interesting takes on things that I don't think uh, you hear from the drivers or the outriders. No, the like Rick talked about it uh, even with with Sue and and uh, you know it's always been apparent to me that every good cowboy always has a, a pretty good counterpart in a woman. So um, just to kind of hold them down, if you will, like uh, keep them steady. So I mean that's just kind of the way of life. Uh, it's the same as ranching or or whatever. So um, there's certainly a lot of uh, spectacular women around the wagons that have. Uh, definitely had a huge huge part in uh, making this whole thing go around and, and uh, bringing us uh, you know where we are today so um, there's certainly a lot of uh, good knowledgeable women out there with some some incredible stories uh, uh, interesting stories about wagons and all kinds of stuff and that actually reminds me uh, we should actually uh, if Sue's listening to this we should get Sue Fraser on uh, women of the wagons I don't know if she'd be into that if that's her kind of thing but she'd certainly be be a, a good addition to the show she would be. And I'm also getting your mom on Women of the Wagons. So any questions I should ask her? Um, I'm not going to wrap myself out and, and told her I told you to ask him. <laughs> Funny bug, she already knows you're the one who told me to ask them. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But yeah, those are the two shows we got coming up. So, uh, and then obviously the video one, uh, that one might take a little bit longer. We're going to start working uh, on it this coming week or weekend um today's date april 28th this should come out in a few days here so uh, you guys will have this and uh yeah we got some exciting stuff coming up so uh tune in and uh stay safe everybody and uh enjoy the summer long quarantine spend some time with some family do some things that you don't normally do because you got the time now and uh, if you want or if you have the time, give us a follow on After the Ninth on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Head over to the WPCA pages, check out the WPCA website, and we'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening, everybody. He's got that wagon in full flight. Here's the wire. But that's a day in the country.